we're really trying to broaden our appeal at this point. Scotland Yard has been dispatched. This is so much better than the workhouse. Let's not dwell on that. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that never makes an enemy by accident. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I want us to get to know each other, to learn about who we both are, without everybody being there. Well, you should have thought that before you agreed to do this podcast. Mm, that's an excellent point. I know. They're all listening. I know. <laughs> it's like life under whatever the audio equivalent of a microscope is. <laughs> that's true. I- a sonoscope? A microphone. Hmm. That seems too obvious. (laughs) It it does. Welcome, cousins. At last, it is here. That's right. The much vaunted premiere. In the United States. In the United States. (laughs) Of Series 3 of Downton Abbey. Hooray! Uh, FYI, we are recording this the day before Downton Abbey airs uh, on PBS. That's correct. Uh, That way it can be up as soon as you finish watching the episode. Uh, but just bear in mind, it is the British edit. Yes. So any feelings or thoughts that we have on the American edit or Laura Linney will wait until the next episode. Especially Laura Linney. Especially Laura Linney. <laughs> that so is... that's that's how we're doing things. Yeah. Uh, thanks to everybody for uh, tuning in. Mm-hmm. Everybody who hung out with us during hiatus. It was great. Indeed it was. And, uh, you know, I've been spoiled on pretty much everything that could happen. <laughs> Thanks to some people. Yes. Uh, but Tom, I think, remains blissfully unaware. Indeed. So, uh, you know, you're welcome. Yeah. No, my uh, my aversion to all social contact continues to benefit me. <laughs> and on that note, would you care to kick us off with some very special telegrams from our cousins? Absolutely. Uh, first, we have a telegram from Cousin Nicholas, who writes, Hey there, cousins. Cousin Nicholas again, and I just wanted to thank you for your second Tom Repeats History episode. It was yet another success, and I'm glad that you exposed Queen Victoria for the weird nut she was. Also, if you don't mind taking suggestions, maybe whenever you guys do a third Tom Repeats History episode, you can do it on the colonies of the British Empire of that time. You guys happen to mention another historic trivia of my country, formerly British Guiana, and I'm seeing a trend here. Which got me to wonder about the other colonies of the time. It couldn't hurt to see how the former motherland got her business done in those territories, which I'm doubtful wasn't all roses and sunshine. Hmm. Anyway, just a suggestion. Keep those episodes coming and season's greetings to you and all the cousins. With love, Cousin Nicholas. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, actually. Yeah. Something I think that we've kicked around in the past about just kind of exploring the other colonies Mm -hmm. and seeing... What they were getting up to. Yeah. How many busts of Prince Albert were there (laughs) around the British world? Next, we have a telegram from Cousin X. Good evening, dear cousins Kelly and Tom. You guys are awesome. I love listening to you. I found you while living abroad when wanting to talk about Downton Abbey with someone and having no native English speakers to turn to. I've since downloaded episodes when feeling lonely in Budapest, Istanbul, Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, and the Netherlands. I travel a lot for my job, especially from May through August. Wow. Now back in the U.S. and so looking forward to DA Season 3 and the corresponding Up Yours Downstairs. I'm sure you've answered this question, but are you going to spend some time with the new Upstairs Downstairs? In a moment of longing for Downton, I downloaded Upstairs Downstairs. I enjoyed it, somewhat, <laughs> as a kind of poor man's Downton. But I'm curious to hear your reactions, and especially to hear you make fun of the characters and the annoyingly sweeping score. 
I know it's not exactly Edwardian, but it is the whole waning manor house theme. So I'm hoping you might spend some excellent mocking time on this sparkling cheese fest. Oh, also, have you seen the Great Expectations miniseries with Scully from X-Files? Just curious. I did love that one. By the way, loved your dueling Titanic review shows. I had watched the Julian Fellows version last year and felt very similarly to you. At once disappointed, annoyed, and just a little bit secretly enthralled in the rubbernecking train wreck kind of way. But as a lifelong boat wreck slash Titanic fan, I hated the blockbuster Winslet Leo Dio Titanic just as much. So there's that. Pretty psyched to try and find the cartoon version you mentioned. Oh, and as a current Jersey Shore resident, living on an ocean block in Brigantine, the island where President Obama visited in the days after the storm, I can attest that there were a few Titanic-esque moments during Storm Sandy, especially when the water began rushing over the seawall and, of course, the pics of water crashing through the subway station in Hoboken. I'm sure that I made at least one stupid I'll never let go joke as it all went down, in fact. (laughs) Oh, and thanks for turning me on to Boar's Gorn Swords. I like those guys and love Game of Thrones. Though I must say, just between you and me, those guys border on misogynist from time to time. Less so red than the other guy. But when Kelly is on Boris Gorn's sword, she really keeps those guys in check. Brings the discourse up a notch, so thanks for that as well. Okay, well enough rambling. Been meaning to write and thank you for a while now, so guess I had a lot to say. Sorry! Love ya and thanks for a great show. Breathlessly awaiting season three, your humble cousin X. Also formerly from Ohio, now of the Jersey Shore, and the world. Okay. Well, first of all, I think that Cousin X, who travels so much, the only explanation is that Cousin X works for the CIA. So I that's... think that's an excellent... No, I'm sold. <laughs> I think I've built an airtight case on that one. Okay. Good for you. <laughs> yes, and Kelly does bring the discourse up a notch everywhere she goes. Oh, stop. In life and in podcasts. Oh, you are just adorable. <laughs> Thank you. We do have the new upstairs downstairs DVD lying around our apartment. We do. So we probably will get to that. Uh in no small part because it does take place during the 30s mm-hmm. and I can see us running out of interesting factoids to share about the <laughs> 20s. Uh and Edwardian England pretty quickly. Indeed. I mean, uh, you know, the fact is that we're well past Edwardian England already. Oh, exactly. I mean, as is Downton Abbey. So. Yes. So as long as things keep moving forward, always gaily forward, <laughs> I think we'll be fine. Yeah. Um, and we have not yet seen the Great Expectations miniseries. Indeed. Although it has come highly recommended to us by mm-hmm. many, many people. Uh, also, if you find that cartoon version of Titanic, The Legend Goes On, please uh, send us a copy because yeah. we still haven't seen it and it's kind of kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. We really want to see it. Badly. Really badly. <laughs> I want to see those mice. <laughs> Me too. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Mrs. Grant who writes, Dear Lady Kelly and Sir Tom, Merry Christmas to you both. I hope this email finds you warm and happy, having had a proper... Can you help me out here? Luncheon. Thank you. I've been lying low since the Twitter spoiler debacle, mostly because I was too ashamed to talk to you, but it was also because I'm afraid you might take away my precious Cousin of the Week title. But I've decided that I would have to face my demons and make my peace before the new year. I am sorry, and I seriously didn't mean to. To make up for what you had to go through, I want to start out by telling you how much I enjoyed the Titanic recap episodes. I LOL'd big time whenever Kelly mimicked old Rose, especially that erotic moment comment. And while the movie itself was crappy, it did bring back lots of good memories of the 90s. I was in high school, and my roommate listened to that damn song which we shall not name on repeat for two months and danced and swirled in our room. Painful. I also want to share my Titanic viewing experience. 
I was too poor to go to the theater, and I wasn't really interested, so I ended up watching it the summer after it came out on bootlegged VCDs on our Windows 96 computer, which had a 13-inch screen. As I began, I realized that I was watching someone filming the movie in a cinema. You could even see that guy's hand shaking. The sound quality was awful, but I went with it. Except that you had to change tape right when Jack and Rose were talking for the last time in that freezing ocean. Then, blackout. And then it was old Rose standing on a ship. Needless to say, I was super confused. So even though I was a teenager with hormones raging, this movie made absolutely no impact on me. This email is going to be a crossover because of two things. One, I just finished watching Boardwalk Empire Season 3. Freaking Duke of Crowborough, a.k.a. Charlie Cox, in Downton Abbey, redeemed himself big time as Owen Slater in that show. He was still a little bit slimy, but much more bearable. Two, at your recommendation, I started listening to Boar's Goran Swords. It's hilarious, and I thank you so much for that, but you need to tell Red and Ivan that they need to give you some commission back, because they are always saying how they bring you new listeners, but here's proof that you brought them a new listener. Score one for Kelly and Tom. I love all the episodes that Kelly is on. Okay, this is getting unwieldy. Sending you a very professional-looking curtsy, not like Shay's, and wishing you both a happy new year. Your every humble servant, Mrs. Grant. Well, uh, I guess we get to wet our beak this time. <laughs> I guess we do, <laughs> which is exciting. I've always wanted to. Yes, and Mrs. Grant, all is forgiven, spoiler-wise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, just go with it. Yeah. Don't worry about it. And uh, I have to say I'm glad for us that pirating content has gotten so much easier because mm-hmm. otherwise that is exactly how we would have had to watch Downton Abbey. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Could have gotten confusing. <laughs> I did enjoy the story about Windows 96, though. <laughs> yeah. That, that brings back memories <laughs> of this weird movie encyclopedia program that we had for mm, some reason. I yeah. forget what it was called. It was like Cinereal or something like yeah, that. Yeah, no, I, I, we had Cinemania, I think. Yeah, it was Cinemania. Yeah. I was like, why did we have that? Because uh, we didn't understand the internet yet. <laughs> Next up, we have a telegram from Cousin Kaylee. Dear Kelly and Tom, thank you for your insightfully hilarious podcast review of Mary Poppins. My three-year-old daughter watches that movie at least once a week, and thus I have now become very familiar with it. I too have often mused that Bert and Mary must be doing it, given their undeniable chemistry. But that practically perfect in every way shtick always bothers me. She's so not practically perfect. (laughs) Mary puts Bert down all the time to make herself look better. Meanwhile, all Bert wants to do is help her and be there for the children. He's such an affable guy. And make no mistake, Mary Poppins is one jealous bitch. Remember how unhinged she became during the song where he lists all the other women's names? She's so easily perturbed. It makes me want to smack the sooty Hitler mustache right off of her face. Otherwise, it is a practically perfect movie in every way. Hope you guys had a great New Year's and bring on the Downton. Sincerely, Kaylee in Seattle. Yeah, great. Yep. We, uh, you know, Tom, Tom, I think is less sympathetic to Mary Poppins than I am, but <laughs> we practically perfect in every way people do have to stick together. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Lord Alexander, who writes, Hello again, my dear cousins Kelly and Tom. I have to say that I love the Mary Poppins episode, as it was my favorite movie when I was younger, so much so that I studied the history of the movie and the book. I found that P.L. Travers hated all the animated things in the movie, mainly the song Jolly Holiday and the Penguins. She also disliked Bert, as Bert in the book was just a screever and matchman, and the sweep was just a minor character that said the luck thing. She also hated that Mrs. Brill and Robertson I were cut from film as they were the main servants in the book. Finally, she thought that the end of the movie should be about a big dinner party for the people of the bank and the comet that Mr. Banks sees that gives him a realization of who he was at the end of book one. 
For the musical, she said in her will that Cameron could only use the songs from the film. Can't wait to hear your next episode. Sincerely yours, Lord Alexander of Tardis. Boy, that comet bit sounds like it's more of Game of Thrones than out of Mary <laughs> yeah, Poppins. It does. Although it's been a really long time since I read that book, so. Right, we're both in the same boat where we're like, we've both read the book and anything could have happened Any as of far this, as we know. Yes, there this all seems very comet, plausible. They could, there could be aliens. Mm-hmm. We don't remember. It could be like American Horror Story <laughs> Asylum, for all we know. <laughs> Probably remember that. And now we have a telegram from Cousin Mike. Hello, Kelly and Tom. Let me apologize in advance for the long telegram. I just have to tell you guys what happened at Christmas this year, but first I need to thank you, Kelly, for introducing me to Downton. I discovered it through the What You Should Be Watching episode of Boar's Gore and Swords featuring Kelly, and ever since then it's been one of my favorite shows, maybe even more than Game of Thrones. This podcast is my only source of downtony goodness, since unfortunately none of my friends watch it. They all think it's some boring PBS show about rich old white people. Cue me trying to explain that while that is kind of true, it is so much more. The conversation inevitably ends with me desperately exclaiming things like, But you don't understand, there's a vagina of death! (laughs) Or, It's Maggie fucking Smith! Or even more inexplicably, just luncheon a bunch of times in my horrible McGee impression. Needless to say, they're just like, no, fools. <laughs> so imagine my surprise and delight when a few months back my cousin Jasmine, who I share my Netflix password with, told me she saw that I was watching Downton and decided to check it out. By the way, God help us all when Netflix cracks down on that. <laughs> Anyway, she told me she watched the first few episodes and she liked it, but she was a little confused about the period and the class system and whatnot. Well, I did my Laura Linnaeus to explain the ins and outs, and then, of course, recommended Up Yours Downstairs. Fast forward to Christmas Day, and all of my family is gathered at my grandmother's house, which I now call the Dowager House. Cousin Jasmine was there, and it was the first time I'd seen her since our talk about Downton. I'd kind of forgotten about it until the door opened, and in walked my sister and her husband. Cousin Jasmine nudged me and said in disgust, Uh... Here come Anna and Bates. And you guys don't understand, but it's the most accurate thing ever. My sister is so Anna. She's friendly, helpful, witty, and could do so much better than the asshole she's married to. And he is so much like Bates, I can't stand it. He pulls the same sort of fake, honorable, selfish, self-sacrificing maneuvers, which of course make my poor sister's life miserable. Did I mention he has a crazy baby mama who has tried everything to ruin both their lives? I can't believe I never made the comparison, but oh my god, when Jasmine said it, I started laughing my ass off. It was so great. Then we noticed as they made their way into the house that he was limping. Cousin Jasmine took the opportunity to announce, and he's crippled to everyone, (laughs) then followed it with a Kelly Anakin boom. At that point, I couldn't even breathe. I was laughing so hard, and the rest of the family was looking at both of us like we were insane. Cousin Jasmine, on fire at this point, said that she's going out back for a smoke and asked me to join her. And we don't even smoke! I, of course, followed if only to escape everyone's look of confusion. It was so awesome. It was like our own Downton Christmas special. We spent the rest of the night chatting about the show, making and breaking character ceasefires on our family, and trying to bait our grandma into saying, What is a weekend? So I would like to take this moment to nominate Cousin Jasmine for Cousin of the Week. She totally earned it for that awesomeness. Five Maggie Smiths. And while we're at it, I totally deserve best evasion for dodging everyone who asked, what the hell is wrong with you? Once again, I apologize for the long telegram, but you know how hard it is balancing numbers in the country. I'm super excited for season three and the return of McGee's crazy accent. Thanks again for the amazing podcast, Cousin Mike. Uh, that is a great story. That is a great That's story. That's an amazing story. Yes. Thank you for sharing. And congratulations, Cousin Jasmine. You are Cousin of the Week. Here, here. 
I uh, I wish your grandma would have said, what is a weekend? <laughs> that would have been amazing. It would have been. Uh, but-, but I'm just so glad that other people are so upset about Anna and Bates. Yes. To the point where they're pointing it out in relationships <laughs> in the real world. This is just, I think, great news. Yeah, see, this is great. This is People can learn lessons that they apply to their life. Like, yeah. who sucks? It's edutainment. <laughs> All right. Well, and very happy holidays to everybody. They're over now. But we trust right. you all ate and drank and made merry in the uh, fashion of your particular faith or creed. Yeah. And uh, now everybody's back to work and hopefully procrastinating by listening to Up Yours Downstairs. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We had a good time ourselves. It's actually about as long as we've gone without recording an episode. That's true. Because we, we had to record the Mary Poppins one a bit early. So, it's, uh, you it know. Feels, uh, it feels very strange. It does. So, without further ado, I think it's time just to dive right in to Series 3, Episode 1 of Downton Abbey. Well, all right. Um, yeah, and it, it begins, as it must, with a bicycle. Because Julian Fellows wills it so. Yeah, uh, it's uh, just Daisy walking a bicycle through town, wearing an odd hat. The the hat and the reason she is not actually riding the bicycle, both unexplained. Uh, then we cut to the interior of the church, where Matthew and Mary are standing. Uh, they're having a rehearsal for the wedding. So Matthew asks Mary if there's any news of Sybil, and Mary tells him in an expository fashion <laughs> yeah. that Sybil and Branson cannot afford to make the journey from Ireland for their wedding. Mm-hmm. The uh, archbishop and the vicar there, I uh, wasn't clear if... Did we, were we sure whether it was the archbishop or the bishop? I never figured it out. Okay, because if it was the bishop, it would be the bishop of Ripon, uh, which has since been renamed to the Diocese of Ripon and Leeds, but back then would have just been the bishop of Ripon. Okay. Uh, if it was the archbishop, it would have been the archbishop of York. Good to know. So, For yeah. there are only two archbishops. That's right. In y- Britain. York and Canterbury. Yes. I, uh, I looked this stuff up. Way to go. Uh, but the, the cleric, whatever he is, is being awfully bitchy about the wedding rehearsal, which struck home to me because the only bishop I've ever encountered at my confirmation was just as bitchy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know that that bishop had to go around to, to a bunch of eighth grade classes all over Southwest and Ohio. Smear oil all over them. Yeah. Was it, was it Carl Modell? I don't think so. That's I think who it was, confirmed uh, me. But I, think I was, was four years Right. I think you, it so. was still uh, Polarchik, Daniel Polarchik. Ah, yeah. so, hey, Southwest Ohio people, <laughs> talking about the Archdiocese. Yeah. Look out. We're really trying to broaden our appeal at this point. <laughs> McGee uh, makes the comment that Travis has to do all the work while the bishop gets all the glory. But uh, nobody. Yeah, actually, it's her. Nobody. Why would anybody yeah. care what she has to say? And also, like, it's it's done. Like, if you were <laughs> right. going to make this criticism, you should have made it like months ago. Yeah. yeah. And it's not entirely clear what time of year it is here. It seems like springtime. Yeah, that's true. Actually, did Ish. it not say what at the beginning? Because it I did, remember it said 1920. It didn't. I don't think it said what month. Okay. At least I didn't see it. Okay. So. In any case, yeah. They may. I think they do a better job with the um, the time stamps Stamps, on PBS. So we'll double check and see. Yeah. Uh, But all of the clothing in general seemed very spring oriented to me. Yeah. No, that seems right to me. Mary is going up to Lord Grantham and asking if they can't get Sybil back to Downton for the wedding. And Lord Grantham gets all poncy about how it's so much better if she doesn't come back now because they don't have time to properly prepare the servants for dealing with her and Branson and they won't know how to act. And I'm like, 
shouldn't the servants just act the way they always act? Isn't that what being a servant is? <laughs> right. Like to gloss over the awkwardness of certain situations by keeping their decorum high? Yeah. Well, and he says something about him still being a matter of interest in the county. And I just envisioned the county saying, who? Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> We've Listen, we're all still mourning our dead from that war. Yeah. Also, we have jobs. Yeah. Unlike you. Yeah. We keep busy. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so Lord Grantham's clearly projecting because he can't <laughs> let it go right. about Sybil and Branson. He sure can't. He really cannot do it. And then Cousin Isabel uh, complains to Matthew. She's like, yeah, no one in the county still cares about Sybil and Branson, blah, blah, blah. Um, which Matthew points out that she must think... Uh, the- TV has been invented. <laughs> right. Yeah, that that they certainly do still care about Sybil and Branson, yeah. according to Matthew. Nothing even happens. Around yeah. there. Although you'd think they'd still be at least... Well, I guess once Bates went to jail, you know, nobody would care anymore. You know, as far as they're concerned. Yeah, that's Unlike true. everyone in Downton Abbey. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's over. Yeah. They're like, oh, so he did kill her. Great. He's gone forever. <laughs> Moving on. But then the bishop, you know, threatens to cast them all into fiery hell. And <laughs> lest they start with the wedding again. So they get back to the rehearsal. Apparently, Daisy learned to ride the bike. Yeah. Uh, we get a shot of her and her hat riding back up to Downton. Uh, mm-hmm. So at some point, she figured out how to ride it. I think they start every season by just filming every character walking or riding towards Downton Abbey <laughs> and just slot it in whenever they need it. <laughs> Downstairs in the servants' dining hall, Mr. Carson is complimenting Mrs. Patmore's treacle tart. It apparently hit the spot. Uh, important note, treacle tart, not a euphemism. Ah, that... That is a shame. That would have been a really interesting development. I know, right? Like, get your keyboards ready, ladies. Uh, Let's write some fan fiction. Catmore. (laughs) (laughs) Or Parson. Oh, yeah. I like Catmore better. (laughs) Very Hunger Games. It it is. So Thomas and Carson uh, exposit that Anna and Mrs. Hughes are in London, and they're getting uh, Bates' murder house ready to let. Yes. Uh, so Anna can presumably make money, which she will then waste Although by to trying think... to free Bates from jail. Right. Below market value, probably. Yeah. They, like, why is this probably... on the uh, why is this on the market? Well, the previous owner killed his wife here. So... And he's in jail now. <laughs> so there's a possibility he might come back. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> we think he's innocent, though. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. We're certainly going to try to help him get out of jail yeah. to seek vengeance. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I'll stay in the workhouse. Thanks for asking. So Thomas starts snarking about how he thought that the state confiscated the property of murderers. But apparently Bates transferred the title to Anna before his trial. Mm -hmm. Which to me seems like a bit of fancy footwork. It uh, it seems that way to Thomas, too. Well, anyway, Thomas says he wouldn't have allowed it, but... Carson reminds him that in Downton Abbey, Mr. Bates is a wronged man, in case anyone who's watching hasn't seen those stupid free Bates t-shirts. And then Carson suggests that if Thomas doesn't like that attitude, he can eat in the yard, which really would cut down on his, you know, transit for yeah. having to go out and smoke all the time. I know. Thomas like, whatever. I like the yard. I spent all the time there. <laughs> and, and I would also like to remind Carson that even in Downton Abbey, Bates was convicted in a court of law. Like, legally. Like, he's innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. So, And he's been proven guilty. Right. He has been. So don't... Uh, don't, Don't go muddying the waters. I mean, fortunately, <laughs> Thomas is a clever chap. Yes. People like Daisy might get confused. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm just glad William's dead. He would be very, very unsure what to think. <laughs> he would be. <laughs> Poor, stupid bastard. <laughs> uh, Isabel and the Dowager Countess are uh, discussing the Branson situation. Isabel supposes that the Dowager Countess agrees with Lord Grantham, but in fact, she does not. She wants to show the village that uh, Branson is uh, just a, a normal human being. Not an Irish monkey. <laughs> right. Well, and it's like, you would really think that Isabel at this point would stop making these grand pronouncements because if the Dowager Countess has proven anything, yeah. is that she does not, she is not rigid. Right. You know, I mean, she wants things to be done the proper way, yeah. but she's perfectly willing to kind of bend that, well, she's not the caricature that Isabel continues to think that she exactly, is. Exactly, despite right. the fact that Isabel continues to be a caricature herself. Yeah, and I feel like more so. Like, I felt like I, in this episode, like, she was really just one note. I have a lot of problems with this episode. I'm well, just going to say this up front here. Yeah. I mean, we, we both do. We had a lot of issues with this episode, uh, which I think, you know, bears discussion a bit more later. But Isabel just seems so stupid in this episode. Yeah, she does. And that's, you know, we like her. And uh-huh. She generally hasn't seemed that way. But I mean, she she's was had very, her moments, she but... was like very strident to the whole episode. Yeah. And just saying things that were so uncouth. Yeah. And you're like, you've been living in this world for like eight years. Yeah. You've got to know that there's a better way to get what you want now. Yeah. Especially as Matthew is well on his way to calcifying into Lord Grantham Jr. Yeah. Very much so in this episode. I don't know. I sort of, I mean, I, the only way I could spin it in my mind was that she's just, you know, sort of slowly settling into like cranky old lady status for mm. the rest of her life. You know, she doesn't have the hospital to run anymore. And, That's true. You know, she's just going to sit in the corner complaining for the rest of her days. <laughs> fun with that molesley yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so isabel thinks that that branson should show up and, and fight his corner <laughs> yeah um and uh she she wants to she wants to send the money but uh lord grantham has forbidden the sending of money to branson and mcgee just looks so pitiful when she said her line about please don't <laughs> robert has forbidden it and i'm like is he beating you she looks very haggard in this episode. She did. That's true. Well, I think, you know, she's just like, uh... She's just... I'm sure she's tired. She wants to be a cranky old woman as well. <laughs> yeah. She's just trying to get through this damn wedding. But, you know, it's great that he forbade everyone from sending them money because he different, He also forbade them from getting married. And, like, that worked out great. <laughs> yeah. That worked out really well. Yeah. His authority is at a peak. No, and that's... Well, we should also take a moment to point out McGee's hat... Oh, scene, man. Which is so... The only thing I could think is that she's wearing that hat in mourning for how weird that hat looks. <laughs> it has this crazy feather, and <laughs> yeah. it's just like... <laughs> and it's just like drooping down. And I mean, it's partly also the way she's sitting and mm-hmm. it's like framed, but it's just so weird. <laughs> Back at the big house, Lord Grantham is on the phone, uh, apparently getting the perturbing results of an STD <laughs> test judging from his face. So it's like, hey, enjoy syphilis. Yeah. Um, so he, he is on the phone and he says he'll he'll come up uh, tomorrow. Apparently, whatever the news is, he can't bear to hear it on the phone. Yeah. Like, the, per- the person on the other end of the line appeared to be wanting to tell him on the phone. Right. But he was like, nope, nope, nope. I'm coming to London. <laughs> Look out. I will be there tomorrow. And the guy's like, I have a lot to do. <laughs> a lot. 
But then Mary comes in and sees his, you know, crestfallen syphilis face right. and asks what the matter. And he says, nothing. Why should anything be the matter? And then like walks off and she's just <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Well, that, that was, that was an odd note. Like, first of all, she was oddly fake about saying, Papa, what's the matter? Like in this weird, it's like, there's no, there isn't actually, you don't have a secret in this situation. You no. can just talk normal. Yeah. Like you're not actually concealing anything for once in your life. That. My papa's got a secret. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes and Anna get back from London and uh, everybody's hanging out downstairs and getting along until O'Brien hears that there's an opening for a footman and immediately suggests her sister's son, who is uh, described as a hobbledehoy by Carson. Yes, and a hobbledehoy is an awkward youth ah, essentially i see so if you are a youth and you are clumsy you are a hobbledehoy <laughs> yes uh so her plan is immediately shot down by everybody downstairs and then interrupted by mcgee ringing for her yeah and it's weird too because like downstairs everybody seems like they're getting along too well sort of they all seem like really friendly. Yeah. Like they've all been on a press tour or something. <laughs> I find it very disturbing. Yeah. Well, I And mean, most sad of all, O'Brien changed her bangs. Uh, yeah. Her bangs aren't like a hideous, you know, leviathan perched up there <laughs> on her forehead anymore. Well, Kelly, there's been a war. I know there's been a war, but she kept them all through the war when they needed that hair to make missiles or whatever. <laughs> I uh, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what they make missiles out of. I, clearly, you don't, because it's not bangs. <laughs> I'm, I'm but they confident. go bang. They go bang. <laughs> this is why you didn't get that job at that defense contractor. I see. I thought it was because of my liberal pinko commie views. Well, could be both. Hmm. Good point. <laughs> um. Yeah. And Carson. Carson also more much more one note. Uh, He's in, very in much the mean. same way. Yeah. Well, he says, this is not the time to be, you know, for a new footman or whatever. I'm like, oh, yes, Carson, because there are times you're so open to new employees. Also, he was just like complaining that they might be shorthanded because they don't have a footman. Right. So, like, it's still a problem. So, cut to O'Brien and McGee. Uh, Julian Fellows has really cranked it to 11 with the eliminating all compelling parts of conversations. (laughs) Yes. And just showing us the tail end of conversations here. Right. Uh, It's kind of egregious. It is. So cut to McGee just saying, oh, yeah, let's hire your nephew. Yeah. Uh, For... You know, uh, well, again, and it's completely cut out. I mean, I like the, you know, concept of once again having O'Brien, you know, pull the strings like she does. Uh So... Lord Grantham comes in and McGee is like, oh, hey, we've got this other footman we can hire. And he is like in a fugue state or something. Right. And he's just like, huh, okay, I'm going to London. And she's like, why? And he's like, none of your business. <laughs> well, he says nothing to bother you with, which, spoiler alert, it's definitely something to bother her with. It's like the most bothersome <laughs> thing that's ever happened to her. Yeah. Well, except for maybe that time that she fell and had that miscarriage. Well, that's true. Because I assume she, like, cracked some ribs and stuff. Uh, well, yeah. He uh, he agrees that she can hire the footman, and, you know, that's the end of that. So, yeah. points to O'Brien. Yeah. She still got it. She does. Even if we don't get to see it in action. Uh, then we see Anna in her out-on-the-town outfit, um, standing in front of an imposing building, which is prison prison 
Uh, we see uh, Bates walking down the stairs and there. Shank Bates! Shank him! Shank Bates! It's, <laughs> we both did immediately start shouting that. Yeah. We assure you. <laughs> but yes, it's the world's greatest prison. She gives Bates uh, something that she found at Vera's place. I thought it was Vera's journal and it's all like, are you there, God? It's me, Vera. <laughs> uh, Why am I such an unconscionable bitch? Right, uh, but there is are no... Is it my hormones? <laughs> is it because I don't know which religion to choose? <laughs> in any case, it provides no answers, but it does have a bunch of names in it, I guess. That... Oh, maybe it's like an address book. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Or, I th- yeah, I mean, in any case, it has names in it because Anna wants Bates to go through and identify all the names in it uh-huh. as to who they were. Uh, because... And he's like, why should I even bother? They're going to kill me anyway. <laughs> and Anna, Anna nails his damn tail on once again. <laughs> yes. She's like Piglet. Yeah. I think it's just because she looks like Piglet. A little bit, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, that's that's a good analogy. And, you know, she's continuing to, uh, you know, believe that it's all going to work out and the case against him will fall apart someday and all that sort of thing. And... uh she says something about what does she say about dining with the king? I don't know. No, forget it. I pretty much don't pay attention to the scenes with Bates and them. <laughs> right. I just assume it's going to make me angry. Right. Because she said she'd rather like you know be with him than dine with the king. I was like, you know, maybe if you dine with the king, you could get a pardon. That's a good point. And by dine, I mean sex. Oh. Well, I'm just Whoa. saying. Oh. Well, she's already at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> It is the king. You know, she would have had luck if Edward was still on the throne. Yeah, that's true. I don't know what George's deal was. Yeah. I presume we could find out. He might not have traded murder pardons for sex. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what kind of oh, king that would not. make him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. Isn't that the whole point of being king? I think so. Are there any kings listening? <laughs> if so, we want to hear your story, specifically about trading sex for murder pardons. <laughs> Uh, Bates also mentions in that scene that he has a new cellmate that he's quote unquote not sure about, which I'm sure is not foreshadowing in any way and we'll never hear anything more about his cellmate. Yeah, I wouldn't think. I wish it was out of BC <laughs> from Oz. I wish I wish too. it was literally any character from Oz because Bates would have been dead like six months ago. That's true. No such luck, I'm sure. Sadly. Oh, maybe Bates will pull a Tobias Beecher and get really cool. It's possible. And file his nails into points and kill an Aryan guard. Yeah. Yeah. That would be much more exciting. That would be so cool. Yeah. Or or I also, I actually do like the idea of him breaking out of prison and just going on a quest for vengeance. I don't even know against who. Just a murderous how killing he, spree. They, how could he ever manage it with that bum leg of his, man? <laughs> he can't go fast enough. See, that's just what would make him so frightening to everybody. <laughs> It'd be like that guy in No Country for Old Men. Oh, Anton Chigurh. Yeah. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. <laughs> I hope he would grow his hair out like that. Yeah. <laughs> this is ridiculous. So Carson is uh, sizing up Alfred, who is O'Brien's nephew, who has already been hired on as a footman. Yeah. Which. And showed up. Seems... Was he, has he just been living in the, like, out, like, in a shed out back, just waiting for the call? Maybe. <laughs> he was in Thomas's black market shed. <laughs> or that other shed where he kept that dog. <laughs> um... No, and I find this so odd because I just felt like it was so hard for people to get hired at Downton in the past for some reason. Yeah. 
And I don't even, I can't even think of an interview apart from Jane's, I guess. Right. But I mean, he doesn't have any references. Yeah. For being a footman. And like, I mean, granted, McGee is stupid. Yeah. Well, McGee is stupid and Lord Grantham was in a fog. Yeah. So I don't know, but he's yeah. already been hired and Carson's upset because, uh, he's too tall. A footman should only be six one, which I think is proof positive that Julian Fellows listens to our podcast. Well, I can only hope so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would, I would certainly think that he would. Then I don't know why he hasn't addressed all of our complaints. I don't either. Maybe he just doesn't like us. Maybe he doesn't. I wouldn't like us if. If I, I was him. him specifically, we made yeah. fun of him a lot constantly. Uh, anyway, so he was a hotel waiter. Alfred was, and he also was in the army. And Carson is just so snippy to him. Yeah, and I mean, I understand being upset because you had you know somebody went over your head, but at the same time, this is like the whole servant master relationship is that they can do whatever the hell they want, and you just have to you know yeah. bite your tongue and deal with it. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I'll say about this new guy, first, he's so, and it's only one episode in, so this may well change, but for the moment, he is so bland. Like, I can't remember his name unless I'm actually looking at his name. He is like a really subpar ginger, too. He's our replacement ginger, and he's just not much of a ginger. He's not, he's just not gingery at all. There's no spice to him. Like, what was the thought process? It's like, what would life at Downton have been like if William had been slightly taller? Let's explore that. And boring. Yeah. And boring. Yeah. This guy probably isn't even good with horses or anything. Probably not. Probably not going to fall in love with Daisy. No point to this guy as far as I can tell. Agreed. Though, you know, something may happen. It's true. This is only the first episode. It is odd recapping them without knowing what's going to happen it is weird yeah we really don't know yeah it's so exciting do you feel <laughs> the excitement cousin <laughs> anyway carson sends uh alfred and his aunt to go find him a livery that might fit yeah god everybody is so crabby they are it's a crabby episode mm-hmm. that's very true everyone just got real bitchy over the hiatus mm-hmm Except for Mrs. Patmore. She's, like, really pleasant. Yeah. No, Mrs. Patmore, and, and I wrote this down somewhere, Mrs. Patmore and Mrs. Hughes. hmm And they're the two people, I think, I think they're the only two in the whole show that I can pretty much say I've never hated in any, like, I think, yeah. pretty much any scene I can think of, either of them. I think that's true. Which is, you know, a, a compliment to them both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well done. We don't know either of your real names. I might. Leslie Nickel. Oh, right. Okay. That's- and then Mrs. Hughes. I can't remember, which All is right. unfortunate. But. It is unfortunate because she does a fine job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary and Matthew are discussing uh, where they're going to live and bone <laughs> after the honeymoon. <laughs> um, the, of course, primary option being at Downton. But Matthew is a little uncomfortable with everyone uh, seeing them, uh, you know, be married and go up to bed together and everything like that, which I can understand. Yeah, I wouldn't want that. Yeah. I mean, granted, it's a very large house. Which Mary does point out. But still, like, what, are they going to take separate staircases every time? Yeah, I no, I mean... Like you and I do when we stay at my parents' house? (laughs) It's funny because it's true. (laughs) Um, We're just kidding. We never have sex at my parents' house. Oh, no. Absolutely not. Not at all. So, mom and dad, if you're listening, you're welcome. Yes, but also sorry for everything else. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But... Why are you listening? Yeah, stop. This is so not something that you will like. Seriously. 
Um, <laughs> Go to church. <laughs> yes. He also, she also says something about carrying him up the stairs naked or something like that. Or she vice says, versa. She says that Papa is so excited that they're getting married that she doesn't think he would mind if Matthew carried her up the stairs naked. To which Matthew is like, why would you say that? Yeah. Why would you put that image in my head? Right. Like, for uh, first of all, he certainly would care. Yeah. I mean, I would hope. How did she get naked? <laughs> right. And <She> just, where? <laughs> yeah. She was just like, listen, I'm going to change for upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> that was Edith. Um, yeah. And uh, it just, you know, gross. Nobody needs to think about that. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. So we'd, we'd rather that hadn't happened. Um, they have the least sexy, sexy banter of any show I have ever seen. They really do. Speaking of somebody who would be very interested in Mary being naked, way to not be sexy at yeah, all. Yeah, way about to it. completely ruin that. Yeah. They seem like they're already like a hundred years old. <laughs> yeah. This whole, and they've all, you know, they've always both kind of been kind of stilted. Right. And I understand that. But it's like they have none of the heat that they had before. Like yeah. there's no tension. Yeah. It's like they're already married. Yeah. And then, like, if that's the way it's going to be, why bother with the wedding? Right. I mean, we all want to see what she looks like in her wedding dress. But, I mean, for God's sake. It, uh, yeah, it is. It's a bit joyless. Mm -hmm. That is very true. Yeah, the whole wedding does seem like a burden to everyone. Yeah, and they had, you know, they had such a nice chemistry all through series one and two. No, and she's treating him like she treated, um... Richard Carlyle. Yeah, yeah. She's just very sort of cold and distant. Yeah. And that is kind of how she is. And right. I understand it's, it's, that. But it's her jam, but... Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it is it is odd. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Mary doesn't want to leave Downton because she's well aware that the name of the show is Downton Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike some people. <laughs> uh, Lord Grantham exits a train at what I assume is platform nine and three quarters. Uh, and he gets in a cab to go to see Murray, his lawyer. And we saw it. We couldn't see anything else, but there was a, a newspaper headline in the background that said Bolshevik menace. Yes. In large type. And we got very excited. <laughs> yeah. We don't know who the Bolshevik menace was. Right. Or, or who which. they were menacing. Yes. Yeah. But, but it was happening. Yeah. It's out there, people. Uh, anyway, so he goes to see Murray and it turns out that Lord Grantham made a terrible investment in railway expansion with the Canadian Grand Trunk Company. Yeah. Uh, Literally ignored the financial of advice of everyone that he pays to prevent him from doing things like this. <laughs> right. And invested the money and the company went bankrupt. Uh, so all of Cora's money that he got from marrying her for her money. Yes. And, uh, of course, we know all that from the trailers. <laughs> yeah. But, God, what a moron. Yeah, Diversify, indeed. man. <laughs> Diversify. Well, it's true. What and is the point of your whole sham marriage if you're just going to flush it all down the loo? Yeah. No, and it's, I mean, I I have to think that this is just, like, that, that this is intended as a, a, just a knock against hereditary, hereditary aristocracy uh-huh. in general. Because, I mean, this is the whole problem with it. That just because your father or grandfather or great grandfather was competent doesn't mean you're not a blithering idiot. Yes, that and should I, not be trusted with this amount of money. We have power. always thought that he was pretty stupid, right? But I mean, as we know, his father had lost all the money as well. Yeah. So maybe it just <laughs> runs in the family. They're like, "Thank God, Matthew's here. We just gotta hold on until this idiot dies." Uh, right. Look, he did the one thing he needed to do, which was marry a rich simpleton. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Once again, the sandwich heavy portfolio pays <laughs> off for the canny investor. Uh, anyway, Lord Grantham gets all up on his GD high horse about how he won't be the failure who ruins Downton, which um that ship appears to have sailed <laughs> yeah. and sunk yeah, along you, with the Titanic. He's not going to be the one that dropped the torch. Uh, you already no, dro- the money you is already gone. handed the torch over to Canadian swindlers. Like it's that's super gone. That's done. Say yeah. goodbye to that torch. <laughs> Is it the torch for the 1920 Olympics in Antwerp? It might well be. We're going to get there, Cousin Dante. <laughs> Calm down. At <laughs> any rate, it turns out we discovered that the Canadian Grand Trunk Company was a real thing mm-hmm. and a real event. So without further ado, uh, let's just turn things over to our resident hoity-toity know-it-all about <laughs> all things financial history and have a sweet little segment of Tom Repeats History. Okay. Welcome back to Tom Repeats History, Tom. That's right. It Aren't is... you just so excited? I'm very excited, cool. actually. Me too. Yeah. So yeah, the Grand Trunk Railway of Canada. Uh, Sounds very... like a terrible name for a railway, incidentally. Uh, it, it does, sort of. Uh, for, well, I'll kick off with a fun fact about it. The uh, band Grand Funk Railroad named after them. Oh. As the Grand Trunk still runs through Flint, Michigan, their hometown. So that's, uh, that's a fun little fact about the Grand grand trunk um (laughs) uh yeah it was uh, started in 1852 and it was uh, actually cited as one of the factors that led to uh canadian confederation which was the process by which the various colonies and provinces in british north america consolidated into the uh the the you know like autonomous basically confederation of canada Uh, and that was because the canadian railway uh sort of helped unify them and also they needed it for military purposes. During the Civil War, they were very nervous because the uh, North was opposed to Britain in general because Britain was more or less on the side of the South. Um, and, of course, the North had all these armies right next to Canada for a while, and they were concerned about that. And during the winter months, the St. Lawrence River, which was their only real way of getting anything into the interior, was frozen and impassable. So having this railroad developed sort of helped them uh, get together as as a as a group uh, they were also very worried after the war there were after the civil war there were a bunch of fenian raids into canada oh my the fenian societies in america uh protesting against british rule in ireland were were blowing things up in canada um so it was you know partly uh canada was looking to like distance themselves a mm-hmm. bit from britain because they didn't need that you know they weren't running ireland they didn't care what happened they didn't need to be fighting with their neighbors about it mm-hmm. so um by about 1867, it was the largest railway company in the world. It ran from uh, Portland, Maine to Chicago. I mean, actually, a lot of its rails were in America, in New England, and, and excuse me, New England, and then in like Detroit and Chicago. So it was, it was, you know, not strictly a Canadian railway. But what happened was they, uh, at first, did not want to expand out west because there wasn't anything between British Columbia and, like, Toronto, Ontario. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a, just a vast, mostly uninhabited area, so it wasn't very profitable to build a transcontinental railroad. Uh, however, the Canadian Pacific Railroad, which started out just in British Columbia, started expanding out east into the farming areas and starting to get into the Grand Trunks area. So the Canadian government pushed them to join up with a yet another company, the Canadian Northern Railway, and get together and build a transcontinental railroad. Uh, but they didn't want to work with the Canadian Northern. 
After that, Canadian Northern also started building a transcontinental railroad, and the Canadian Trunk Railway, or the Grand Trunk Railway, decided that it was in danger at this point of getting squeezed out of the whole thing, so they decided that they would build yet a third completely separate transcontinental rail across Canada. These guys sound like real road scholars. Yeah. Railroad scholars. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, But not really. They, uh, They... their route was the farthest north, thus the farthest from any actual inhabited areas. Uh, the, the one advantage that they had was that they had the best pass through the uh, the Continental Divide and the Rockies, but otherwise they just really had a bad route and one that wasn't any particular use to anybody. During this time was when, um, and this is sort of referenced, uh, Charles Melville Hayes was the guy that was sort of in charge for a while and people respected a lot. Uh, but he died on the Titanic. Now, this is odd because in the show, Lord Grantham says, talks about the investment as something that was going to pay off after the war, implying that he had made the investment during the war. But the war, of course, happened well after the sinking of the Titanic and thus the death of this guy. So, I mean, it's not like none of it is strictly contradictory because like it- – it Murray just feels- says, yeah, Murray says that the death of this guy led to a lot of mismanagement or whatever. But, but that, the, would that would have already happened. Yeah, that would have predated the start of the war by two years. Right. And I mean, generally speaking, if things are going to be mismanaged in the wake of an executive's death, like the writing is on the wall pretty quickly afterward. You would think that, yeah. Well, so- and if it was mismanaged right off the bat, that would have been obvious. Mm hmm. I don't know. Well, and the other thing about it is that it really seems to have been mismanaged throughout its history, even under. Yeah, I mean, obviously, guy. it sounds like you know he was a real dick. Well, and it's is the. I basically only had two sources on the internet, which were Wikipedia and this book that's available through Google Books that I could read through. But they were kind of contradictory because he's described on Wikipedia as cost conscious, but another source says that he was part of the reason that their transcontinental line ran so far over budget because he insisted on the highest quality construction. Interesting. So that's not to mention that, you know, building a third unnecessary, unprofitable transcontinental railroad is about the least cost conscious thing you could do. Indeed. And I think that was partly, I think that decision may have been made not entirely by him. I mean, part of it was they made an agreement with the government to do it. Like the government was pushing this as well for whatever so weird. It is weird. He wanted to focus on the Southern New England Railway, which was going to extend them down to Providence, Rhode Island. So because it's an, a year-round port, mm-hmm. uh, which Portland, Maine, their current access was not year-round. But it was difficult because Vanderbilt owned – was in competition with this railway throughout his life. And mm-hmm. was they were always fighting over different routes and different connections and, and rights of way. Uh, so he kind of fought them on that, and it was going slowly – and everybody else in his company was fighting against this thing. So after he died on the Titanic, they just abandoned it after already having spent $2 million on the thing. Uh-huh. But then he died, and so they had all the expense without ever actually finishing it and getting any use out of it. So that was that was another problem there. The Pacific Division of the company was nationalized actually in 1919, so a year before uh, the episode. And um, the company overall was sort of nationalized in 1920 as predicted here but the shareholders most of whom were in the uk fought it and there were sort of years of fights and lawsuits and it wasn't really officially nationalized until 1923 um 
So it was never actually profitable, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. I mean, Canada was just dramatically overbuilt for rail. You know, it had like twice as much rail capacity per person as America mm-hmm. at, at the time. Um, and it never at any point in its history made any particular money. One of the books about the railroad that was not available online that I would, was interested in was entitled The Creative Financing of an Unprofitable Enterprise, The Grand Trunk Railroad of Canada, 1853 to 1881. That sounds lovely. Yes. And, you know, and note that that's still 30 years before this had even come right. up. So it is... The thing that's odd about it is, I guess it's, you know, it's just never clear why this seemed like such a solid investment to to Lord Grantham. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, I mean, I guess, you know, he was convinced. I guess all it is, is he said, railways are a good investment. Item two, this is the biggest railway in Canada. Mm-hmm. Item three, profit. You know, right. I, I guess that was his well, thinking. Well, and I mean... You know, if nobody else was investing in it, you know, this isn't explicitly stated in the show, but if none of his peers were investing in that particular railroad, he could have potentially been like, oh, nobody else is doing this. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm going to make out like a bandit on this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, gosh, that yeah. is just a nightmare. Yeah. So it just... Well, oh, and, and so then if they were all doing these lawsuits and stuff... I guess I don't understand what, you know, the money was gone by that point, right? Right. Well, it, it had been they put under... They couldn't get the money back. Yeah. Well, that was actually... And I couldn't find anything conclusive about this either way because some of what I read seemed to indicate that by nationalizing it, they would just... The government would pay all the bonds back and so that... So, I, I mean, I think what it is is that... Actually, I guess that sort of makes sense. But is I that, mean, the bonds would have decreased in value at that point, yeah. Yeah, well, actually, now that I think about it, I think what it is is that nationalizing it meant that their creditors would all get paid off by the Canadian government, mm-hmm. but their shareholders get wiped out. Oh, okay. I think that's what that, that would make. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Boy, this is really the entailment of Series 3. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to hear what Laura Linney has to say about it. Oh, my, yes. In case you couldn't tell, I was being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. Um... So yeah, that was uh, that was the Canadian Grand Trunk Rail, a much more uh, narrow scope than my usual things, mm-hmm. and you know, out of my comfort level. Like I, you know, I was reading because the book I was reading, I was actually kind of interested in, but it was just this very like, it was clearly written for people that already know about the economic history of railroads, uh-huh. which I am not. <laughs> so it was it was interesting. You told me you were before you married me. <laughs> well, I made a false representation. Ah, uh, have you swallowed a dictionary? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tom. That was actually very enlightening. You're welcome. It usually is. <laughs> yeah. Back to the episode. Uh, we're in the village. Some dumb villagers are putting up white pennants for the wedding. Edith comes out of somewhere, and I am so excited. Mm-hmm. Why am I so excited to see Edith? I uh, I don't know. She looks happy. She looks healthy. She looks really good. Mm-hmm. She really does. She was in the background of one of the scenes of the church, just sort of being like, hi, I yeah. didn't die or anything. I'm still here. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, yeah. We're, she's still, ah, uh, yeah. just like, ah, uh, like finally there's some vitality on the screen. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of vitality, who <laughs> should be there in his automobile but Sir Anthony Strallen? Wow. And she just kind of jumps in his car. She's like, hey, we're going for a ride. He's <laughs> like, oh, I say. Uh, so he's asking about 
the wedding and they're very awkward and they're very cute. They like, are. How well, are they the most like fun, flirty couple on the show right now? I know. And how he, did this happen? And he also actually looks a bit better and, and he does. He looks more, yeah, like lively. Mm-hmm. But yeah, cool. Because he asks, uh, uh, you know, are are you excited about the wedding? And she's like, of course I am. I'm a woman. Thus fall under the mandatory nuptial obsession act of 1745. <laughs> uh, she also lets him know that Sybil is mysteriously coming over now for reasons that have not been explained. Yes. Uh, even to them. So somehow Sybil's coming. Yeah. Sir Again, Anthony's like, okay, did, wh- I don't care. He did ask specifically. <laughs> oh, did he? he oh, did. okay. He asked specifically about Shirley MacLaine and Sybil. All right. Well, fair enough. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, they they don't actually drive off. <laughs> no. The scene ends, but the car is still stationary, so I hope those crazy kids got home okay. <laughs> it's like, I wasn't actually going anywhere. This this car doesn't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this is just where I like to hang out and write in my feelings journal. <laughs> With my good arm. <laughs> At uh, Crawley House, Molesley is dressing Matthew and asks what the plans are for after the wedding. And uh, Matthew Matthew's quite a dick. Tumultly. It's really unconscionable. It's yeah. ridiculous how mean he is to him. Well, because Mosley just assumes that he is going to go get to be the valet for mm-hmm. for Matthew, you know, going forward as is a quite reasonable assumption. And and Matthew's like, oh, I always just thought of you as a butler who helps out as a valet. This wh- why? Which is ridiculous because wasn't Mosley hired specifically to act as a valet for Matthew? See, Remember all that stuff in yeah. the first series where he wouldn't let him put his cufflinks on, right? Right, and all that jazz. Yeah, and but I just I do not understand why Matthew is suddenly such a jackass. It's like, oh, that's funny because I've always thought of you as a middle class attorney that thinks he's a big shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i j- it's so uncomfortable because it really is god like it's like Molesley is based on someone from julian fellows's life <laughs> that he just fucking hated yeah because nothing good ever happens to him yeah he's a coward in the war anna wants to bang Bates for no apparent reason yeah well i think the other theory here is that uh dan stevens got all uppity about his chances for uh, a different career and mm-hmm. julian fells like all right matthew's a dick now yeah that's how you want to play it i mean we'll see how this plays out we'll see how people like you now <laughs> he ain't pretty no more <laughs> there's a whole puppy kicking arc coming up <laughs> <laughs> oh, can't man. say why. I just, I just dislike them. <laughs> I just wanted us to get to know each other better, <laughs> and he refused. Thomas is now shown dressing Lord Grantham, and I wonder now if if Lord Grantham calls him Barrow and not Thomas. Yeah, he never calls him by a name. Yeah, so it may be that they're simply going to completely avoid this. Well, he, he he never knew his last name, and now he's too embarrassed to ask. <laughs> Uh, you there. Valet. Valet, I say. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Thomas just asked, you know, how was London? He was only there for two hours, so he's got to be tired from, you know, just going right, right. straight there and straight back. Uh, he then tells Lord Grantham that the new footman has arrived and been hired, and Lord Grantham asks, he is just shocked. He's yeah. like, what? A new, va- a new footman? Yeah. 
And it's like you... we You weren't drunk. It was, for once, on screen. We did see we this. We did see you <laughs> yeah. actually agree to this. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Lord Grantham goes off to complain to McGee about it and, and uh, says that no one new must be taken on at all and, and uh, starts bitching about uh, money and how everything's expensive. And McGee is just mystified. She's like... Right. Well, of course it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. We're rich. I know. And Lord Grantham is like, I am sick of people not knowing about the secret that I'm keeping. <laughs> <sighs> oh, poor me. I am actually very team McGee in this episode. I am as well. Which rarely happens. I almost want to call her Cora. <laughs> but yeah. I won't for fear that the cousins would revolt. Yeah. Although I will say I do have a note for this scene saying that I think McGee sometimes switches accents for a line just to see if anybody notices. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> Fun note about McGee. So uh, we watched this two times together mm-hmm. to prep. And then I went through again and watched it like, you know, at three times speed. Uh, so I could just get a better look at all the clothes for the Gibson Girl Award. And the only person I could understand when it was going that fast was McGee. Because <laughs> she talks so very slowly. <laughs> like everybody else was like. <laughs> she was like, Robert. <laughs> I was like, good lord, woman. Somebody needs to light a fire under your ass. This episode was an hour and six minutes. I'm willing to bet that extra six minutes was all on you. So in the hallway, it's before Alfred's first dinner that he's serving as footman. And uh, O'Brien's telling him, don't be nervous. And, you know, you you are very eager and willing to learn. And Thomas just comes by and is like, oh, yeah, he doesn't have any experience. And Alfred's like, you know, that guy is right. <laughs> and I'm like, do you want this job or not, Ginger? No, it's he's 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 a, he's a puzzle. He's a cipher. Alfred. Yeah, he is. So far. Yeah. And there's all this animosity between O'Brien and Thomas, yeah. which I cannot figure out the source of. Yeah. I, I, I just I it's. It was there before she suggested that Alfred come on. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, you guys were best buds. I know yeah. there was some friction in series two, but like, well, sure, but she I was mean, sympathetic when his black market thing fell through in general and, and you yeah, know, was trying to help him become the valet and. Yeah, and it's not like you have anybody else to be friends with. Like, it is, I don't know. Do we, here's, a, do we see them smoking at all? Anybody? Not, not in this episode. Yeah, that's what I thought, which I mean, I think partly may just be a, you know, let's not glorify smoking which decision. Which I appreciate. You know, that's fine. Um, but yeah, we, we don't see them together like that. So no, and they just, they seem very upset with each other. And yeah. I, I just, I don't think I'm missing a plot point here. Yeah. It yeah. could be, please correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, sure. But it just, it does seem rather unmotivated. You no, know, I mean, it's just, yeah, there's, there's so much in this episode that just feels like narrative economy. Well, but, it, and it's all in the same direction. It's everybody being just bitchy. Yeah. Just not um, outright, not to any effect. Just right. everybody and it's just not like, whinging the whole time. It's not like bitchiness hasn't always been a part of the show. It's a soap opera. Right. It just seems to have been taken to a different level mm-hmm. to us. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Julian Fellows was on his period when he wrote it. <laughs> it could be. So speaking of people that are pissed, <laughs> uh, Daisy is pissed uh, because they were supposed to hire a new kitchen maid after she was promoted to assistant cook. But they have not, despite the fact that they have now hired this new footman. And Thomas encourages her to uh, to go on strike, basically, to Which is, to withhold I think her a services. Which uh, is, a perfectly reasonable thing to suggest. Yeah, 
Uh, that said, spoiler alert, get ready for the shallowest exploration of labor relations that you have ever seen yeah, in this episode. I could true. not believe. Anyway, we'll continue uh, to discuss well, it, but nothing's going to happen. Nobody wanted us to get concerned about that Bolshevik menace. <laughs> well, that's... Maybe it was Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Yorkshire! Yorkshire terrified! <laughs> Scotland Yard has been dispatched. Bolshevik menace. Back chat from maid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, that would mean the storyline was interesting. Yeah, that's true. So up at dinner, uh, the family are discussing travel arrangements uh, when Sybil is going to arrive when uh, Shirley MacLaine, who will henceforth be referred to as McL, <laughs> being as she is McGee's mother. Yes. And so... Alfred is serving and he is not very good at it because in a hotel, the the waiter would put the food on your plate. Mm. So he's doing that, which I'm like, that's like, that's some, like he's doing it one handed. He's holding the serving dish, mm-hmm. you you know, not tongs or anything. It's like a fork and, an, and a knife or something. Mm-hmm. And so the Dowager Countess is like, uh, I'll do that. Thanks. And yeah. I'm like, shouldn't you people be more lazy? I thought you were <laughs> aristocrats. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that the implication is that as aristocrats, they should only have to take what they think they'll eat or something. Sure, sure. So she uh, she serves herself these potatoes and asks if he's really that tall. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I thought maybe you're on stilts. And I'm like, that's not a very good line. It's not a good line. Uh, but brace yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm braced. I'm braced. Well, there's just worse to come. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Matthew starts blabbering about how he wants to live in a simpler way he doesn't want all of this frippery and servants going on yeah uh there's a lot of lines from the trailer in this and you know maggie smith says that you know it's as aristocrats their job is to provide employment Mm -hmm. an aristocrat is as much used to the county as a class hammer and edith (laughs) dies laughing edith is super gay she is like granny (laughs) oh you made a funny yeah well yeah uh because the the dowager's very up and down in this scene because she's got that she also uh has the line about how miguel always makes her appreciate the virtues of of british people and matthew says but isn't she american and the dowager countess says exactly and then matthew rolls his eyes because he cannot believe how clunky that was (laughs) like you know like Evan Costello called. I think they were only like five. But <laughs> they want their bid back. Yeah. Yeah. No, I found that one very... Uh, I guess just... it would more Laurel and Hardy would be more appropriate. Yeah. Laurel and Hardy called. <laughs> yeah. Uh, waka, waka, waka. Yeah, but I found that very uh, forced. Uh, but, that, but then she has a line, because uh, uh, I think it's that Mary says that Matthew's motto is be prepared... And she says, I think Baden-Powell may have stolen that from you. Carson's motto is Oh, be Carson's prepared. motto, yeah. yeah as yeah. if Matthew's ever been prepared well, for yeah. anything. I knew it was somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but her line that, uh, that Baden-Powell had stolen that, that was a good line. Baden-Powell, of course, being the founder of the scouting organization, yes. the Boy Scouts. <laughs> yes. Uh, downstairs, Thomas starts uh, bitching about the fact that he's going to have to look after Matthew. Uh, and I'm not sure when... Like, when is that supposed to be like when Matthew comes to live at the house? I guess so. 
there's a lot of conversations that start without, you know, they're like pronouns without antecedents. I'm yeah. like, I have no clue what or when you're talking about. Right. And Mosley is there, and so he is... I guess it's that Mosley had discussed the fact that Tom, that uh, Matthew seemed uninterested in him as a valet, uh-huh. and so that's why Thomas thinks that he's going to have to look after Matthew as right. well. But Mosley says that he, he's not worried about his job because he's essential to Isabel, which which Matthew did, in fact, say to him earlier. Um, and it so, was like the most backhanded compliment ever. Uh, yes. <laughs> that horrible old woman that I live with <laughs> loves you. <laughs> um, uh, and to which O'Brien says that we're all ex- uh, we're all essential before we get sacked, sacked. Um, which is quite true. Uh, but Mrs. Hughes invites Mosley to stay for dinner, and he says that he must get back and get the house ready or whatever. And O'Brien snarks that, oh, yes, you know, you're so essential. I don't know <laughs> why you're so worried. Matthew is explaining to Mary that he needs to go talk with someone about something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Again. I only got from this conversation that it was about a person and the will of the person. Yes. So I inferred that he must have to go talk with a lawyer. Uh, but he's standing there flirting with Mary and Isabel is like, Matthew, get in the car. I'm cold. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say in Isabel's defense this time that she does say, uh, or she or possibly Lord Grantham is like, uh, let's go. Everybody is waiting for you. And then they just sort of keep talking and completely yeah. ignore it. It's like, so, aren't they both in their 40s at this point? They should really be more considerate. I, yeah. Because Mary was getting old in 1912. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so they have a little spot of innuendo about, he asks, are you looking forward to the wedding? I also want to point out that at this point, it is in no way clear when the wedding is happening. Right. We like, spent the bulk seems... of this episode like, when the shit is this wedding? <laughs> right, because we know it's coming up at some point. Uh-huh. Everybody's talking about is it. Is it but... this episode? Oh, right. Is it another episode? I have no idea. <laughs> um, Will it be interrupted by World War II? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, but uh, Mary says, yeah, she's excited. And Matthew says, well, I'm excited about all sorts of things. That's the only real moment of heat, I think. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, oh, don't make me blush. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, you don't have any blood in your veins. Yeah. No, they did have a half moment there. That is true. Uh, A car rolls up to the front of Downton and deposits Sybil and Branson at the door. Hooray. Sybil has worn her nicest sack for the occasion. Oh, my God. Her (laughs) freaking clothes, man. They're awful. And look. It's authentic. I looked up 1920s maternity wear. <laughs> that is what that shit looked like. Yeah. I mean, it was like, here, be ugly for nine months. Yeah. You, you're required by law. You know how bad a drop waist looks on a normal person? <laughs> well, put it on, Prego. <laughs> Happy birthday, baby. Um... Sybil thanks Lord Grantham for sending the money, and he's like, I don't send you no no money. I hate you. This is something that I don't like about Sybil, and I think I've always, like, she's always been like this, but she's Mm -hmm. like, oh, Papa, thank you for the money. Tell me you sent it. Tell me you did. And I'm like, you know, just because someone tells you something doesn't make it real. Yeah, yeah. No, that that is a move she goes to. McGee manages to force herself to call Branson Tom. Yeah. It clearly sticks in her throat. Yeah. But uh, she's... She's making a really valiant effort here. Yeah. Uh, unlike Lord Grantham, unlike Lord Grantham and Carson. Uh-huh. Both of whom just, just real dicks. I don't understand why they're being so... Like, Lord Grantham, whatever. That guy does what he wants. Yeah. But, like, Carson... 
I mean, I guess Carson's always been very judgmental. And I guess this would really hit him where it hurts. Yeah. But he's also, A, had time to get used to it. Well, and everybody seemed a lot more okay with it in the Christmas special. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, maybe that's because they weren't there and nobody actually had to cope yeah. with this weirdness, but... Yeah. No, it... it Yeah. It was uh, just, again, just an unpleasant taste. Yeah. Back at Crawley House, Isabel asks Matthew what his lawyer had to say. She says his name, but I didn't catch it, and we didn't have subtitles, so yeah. if you know, let <laughs> me know. Yeah. Uh, it turns out Reggie Swire, Lavinia's dad, named him as one of three possible heirs to his fortune, which he did not want to divide. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why so many people in England are so opposed to dividing their fortunes. Like, you know you'll be dead. Yeah, and also, <laughs> like, maybe you should redistribute it for the greatest amount of possible good, but yeah. whatever. Well, because apparently he was loaded. He was apparently loaded, which you'd never know from his lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Although Lavinia was always pretty tricked out. Yeah, but I mean, you know. There's... I mean, except for that St. Patrick's Day thing. <laughs> right. But I mean, to me, I think it was, you know, there's a difference between upper class and loaded. That's true. Uh, so the first heir died before Reggie died, which is kind of weird because that would have just been the previous year. Yeah, it doesn't, it like... People die like flies when there's money at stake. Apparently. In, in, the, in the world of Downton Abbey, being named an heir to something is the kiss of death. <laughs> uh, so the second heir, a Mr. Polbrook, yes. moved to India years ago to see about some tea plantations that he had there and just disappeared. Right. Pull the whole heart of darkness thing, apparently. Yeah. It's, well, it's very odd because the impression is that he went off and then nobody thought to like ask after him until now. <laughs> No, I know. Like, did he have a family? <laughs> right. <laughs> Somebody left him the tea plantations. Like, I'm going to leave these tea plantations to someone with no family. That right. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Like, listen, everybody I care about, if you don't hear from me for the next five to ten years, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't send any messages. Well, and if you wanted to do that, shouldn't you have just faked your death in the first place? Yeah. Anyway, I do like this scene, though, because it reminds me very much of my own middle-class family, where, you know, he's telling her about this guy, and Isabel is just all, like, trying very... She's like, don't say anything about the money. Don't say anything about the money. (laughs) She's like, lucky Mr. Polbrook. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, ah, he got so much money! Yeah, she's got, like, dollar sign pupils. So uh Matthew is all like, "Oh, whatever. They're going to find us guys. Like whatever." Yeah. I, you know, money. I don't I don't need it. I don't even need a valet. Yeah. He's well, I mean, he's apparently like become like a hippie. Yeah. Like or something. Yeah. Which is very irritating to right. me. Right. Like he's going to move to San Francisco and panhandle for a year and then <laughs> come back. <laughs> Talk about his experience as a hostel. <laughs> yeah. Startup blog. Uh, downstairs, they're discussing who is going to dress Branson. Uh, Thomas and Carson both refuse, refuse, damn it, mm-hmm. to dress a chauffeur. Mrs. Hughes correctly points out that he is not, in fact, a chauffeur anymore. And somebody has to dress him. And it's probably not going to be that hard since he knows how to dress himself. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Way to go, Mrs. Hughes. Uh, again, <sighs> she is... is the voice of reason, as always, but in a particularly refreshing way this episode. Well, she... <sighs> Every time she says anything in this episode, I feel better about the show. She is one of the people, and actually Thomas as well, 
seem like two of the only people who have like retained their character from the previous two series. Yeah. Everybody else, it's got that whiff of having read your own press about it. Right. Like, Thomas, I think, is probably the... We had to see more from him. Yeah, yeah. But his character seems unaltered. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, the character himself has gone through some things, but his personality mm-hmm. seems the same. Yeah. And, you know, O'Brien doesn't seem to have quite as much of an edge about her. Yeah. For some reason. I mean, and she wants something this episode, so she yeah. always gets a little bit easier to cope with. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's not terrible, but... But just kind of Carson's redeeming qualities are very lacking. In an episode, like, would it have killed Julian Fellows to write in a scene for him and Mary? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would have been great. Yeah, it would have been. It just feels like everything, all the, like, the heart of Downton Abbey is just not here. Yeah. What, I mean, the things that I really love about it aren't present. Yeah. Well... Uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah. And it's also, you know, I mean, it's hard to know for us, too. We're watching it in, you know, we watched the first two seasons in, like, two days. Yeah. You know, this is the first time we've watched new episodes, like, with this sort of, like, where we've had time to sort of think about the show and uh-huh. what we think about it. And it's, you know, I think we're definitely coming at it with a different perspective now. Well, yeah. I mean, we did, you know, we did watch it pretty critically. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, I mean, I I don't, I mean, I think, you know, the, the changes that we're seeing are real, but I just wonder to what extent our perspective is different. I I don't think it is. I really think it's something about the show itself. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I had had a thought and I, uh, I know that you don't uh, agree with it, but just having seen his Titanic, I feel like did, did that just open me up to the flaws in his like character or whatever See, i don't think so because i yeah. feel like the the complaints that i have about julian fellow's storytelling i'm less bothered by that in downton abbey these are these are mm-hmm. new flaws that he's you know he's ratcheted certain things up yeah i really do think like on spec there's way more scenes of people having you know snippets of these conversations that would be interesting he's just refusing to let us see them mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, and I think also a major problem with this new series that was essentially inescapable, that isn't even really his fault, is that he needed the, the primary, like, uh, uh, storyline from the, from the first two seasons that have been kicked off at the very first scene of the very first episode has finally played out. Mm-hmm. And he needs something new to have these high stakes and he needs it immediately because the show doesn't function without high stakes or, or at least he doesn't think it does. I wish he was. And, and there's no way you can't get, you could get away with that when it's the series premiere mm-hmm. and there's the implied stretch of normal life that this contrasts with. But then when the old thing is over and then this immediately comes out of nowhere, it's always going to feel forced and, and awkward. I guess so. But I just, I also just feel like this thing with them losing all of Cora's money is so manufactured. Well, that's what well, I'm saying. But like, no, we already did a money plot. Yeah. Like, have, you know, have Lord Grantham die or something. I mean, I know, you know, you mm-hmm. don't want to fire Hugh Bonneville. Right. But, I mean, you know, do a time jump. Do something. Because I don't really care that much about Matthew and Mary inevitably getting Like, I'm excited that they're right. going to be married. Yeah. But, you know, now that I knew that they were getting married, I don't necessarily need to see it. Like, of all things. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is your forte, fellows. Yeah. Not showing me stuff important that happens. <laughs> right. Well, in any case. 
Uh, up at dinner, the Dowager Countess asks if it is an Irish tradition to not change for dinner. Uh, and Branson reveals that he doesn't own tails, a dinner jacket, or a morning jacket for the wedding. Lord Grantham is like apoplectic. <laughs> yeah. That he would dare to show up to a wedding in a morning jacket, which we did discuss uh, on the episode where we talked about weddings, that it's, you know, the attire was very stringent. Yes, yeah. And uh, Mary and Edith insensitively suggest that he buy a Downton wardrobe to keep there for visits, yeah. uh, which is exactly like when I was having car trouble my, fesh- my freshman year of college and my one rich roommate was like, well, why don't you just buy a new car? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. There's so many things wrong with that statement. Yeah. Well, I also like, I also like the Dowager Countess's thing about uh, how... Uh, she says it might have been an Irish tradition. We don't change on the first night of a voyage. Which I thought was a perfectly fine thing to say. Yeah, because she's just, she's just saying, look, I have to ask and I have to, I have to, all she, see, what she's doing, at least in her perception of it, is she's just tactfully letting him know that he's being not correct. Well, and, and she's also trying to check for herself. Because right. maybe it's something that she doesn't know. Well, and I mean, even if she doesn't believe for a second that it's an Irish tradition, even if she's certain that it isn't, that's just a polite way yes. to get to it, you know. And and she, you know, she wants him to live up to the standard, mm-hmm. and she wants to help him do that. That's unlike Matthew, who very foolishly directly brings up Ireland. Yeah, and Isabel, <laughs> who picks it up. And just rubs salt in that wound. <laughs> and, you know, Branson gets pretty worked up as, right. like, duh, this is literally his... He was going to dump that terrine of shit on that general. <laughs> yes. Like, this is not a man who, <laughs> who takes this lightly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, you know, Matthew is concerned because he can't understand why the irish wouldn't want to have home rule but still be under the jurisdiction of the king Mm -hmm. uh to which branson replies would you like to have the kaiser ruling england which carson (laughs) breaks a glass yeah at the mention of the kaiser (laughs) which i I enjoyed that (laughs) no it was fantastic yeah um and Uh, then and then McGee has this is actually maybe my favorite moment in the episode with McGee. she says is it true Irish gardens have more variety than ours. Yes. And Edith pipes in and is like, oh, yeah, remember we went to Mrs. What's-Her-Name and she had an Irish garden? Yeah. And, like, that is some deft hostessing. Yeah. That was well, well played. I'll say that much for Mary. In no way will she be as gracious a hostess as her mother. It's true. She may be simple, but the one thing she's good at, she is so good at. Yeah. Well, she she she's really an interesting character Mm -hmm. because she is... She veers so much between, you know, borderline brain damaged and really savvy. And very perceptive. Yeah. And, and, and yet the character stays consistent and like Mm -hmm. it, it all, it still works together. Maybe it's all down to Elizabeth McGovern. Maybe we haven't been giving her enough credit. I kind of, I kind of am leaning towards that. McGee, if you're listening, look, it's early. (laughs) Yeah. We might, you know what? I hesitate. Perish the thought. Right. I mean, she'll still be fun to imitate. But yes. We've underestimated you, yeah. G. Then Carson is downstairs blustering about the way uh, Branson was bad-mouthing the king. Mrs. Hughes is, is you know, sympathetic towards Branson in the difficult position he's in. And then uh, Branson shows up. Ah! <laughs> he's, uh, it's a ghost! <laughs> he's uh, come down to say hello. He doesn't want people to think he's gotten too big for his boots. He's actually shrunk. I want to give Alan Leach a sandwich. Like... <laughs> 
I think I was complaining in the previous series that he looked too chubby. I, I think but you were. now he's gone too far in the opposite direction. Well, he, he, he donated his chubbiness to uh, Dan Stevens. Which... Dan Stevens. Yeah. Like, I don't know what you've heard about America, <laughs> but people be thin here. Yeah. Listen, we suck. You better get it together. Yeah. We <laughs> are going to rip you apart. Yes. Like us specifically on this podcast. Yes. And, and we're no prizes ourselves. No, we're really <laughs> not. Let's just make that perfectly clear. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Branson says that uh, they've been keeping informed. Uh, Mary keeps them up to date about these situation with mr he calls it the story of mr the bates. story of mr so like bates the story of O, only like horrible <laughs> it's it's the legend of mr bates <laughs> they still he haunt, say he still haunts these halls limping around and being noble <laughs> um, and carson gets offended that he calls mary mary rather than lady mary even though that's perfectly correct Carson. Yes. You should be in favor of correctness. That is what Mrs. Hughes said. She says, well, he knows her now. <laughs> yeah. And Carson says that if he wants to play their game, he's going to have to learn their rules. Well, but that's the thing. Branson could call Mary Mary to other members of the family. Right. When he speaks to the servants, he should be saying Lady Mary. And that's, it's really yeah, weird because yeah. he calls her Lady Mary in a later scene when he's talking to Matthew. Mm-hmm. Well, but he can you know, be inconsistent. He's got to like be that. having a really rough time. Yeah. Like, it's totally fine, like, you know, character-wise for him to be inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. This is like that time I went to that wedding for your coworker, and I didn't know anyone, <laughs> and we got seated with his one cousins from New Jersey. <laughs> yes, that was, that was... That was amazing. It was. Up in the drawing room, Mary asks Matthew what the lawyer said to him, and she says... I presume he turned up. I'm like, what do you mean you presume he turned? Shut up. Why are you being (laughs) such a bitch? Uh, And like Lord Grantham before him, Matthew refuses to tell Mary what is going on. Uh, Instead, he wants to talk about the wedding and which relations are coming, uh, which originally I was going to call bullshit on because nobody actually wants to talk about the wedding that close to the wedding. (laughs) Yeah. But he wants to know which relations are coming to the wedding so he can try and get them straight mm, right, in his head right which that's reasonable yeah true no even edith said earlier she yeah. was sick of it mrs patmore tells daisy that she can go to bed when her work is done and daisy is all i'll go to bed when i want to not because you told me <laughs> she was never born into this stupid servitude and d- yells at mrs patmore about the fact that the new kitchen maid was not hired even though it's not mrs patmore's fault she's just a cog in this wheel like everybody else right but uh, she says that, uh, you know, Mrs. Patmore says she's still getting the extra seven shillings a month. She's still called assistant cook. But Daisy says that you still kept me here on a false representation. And Mrs. Patmore says, oh, have you swallowed a dictionary? More like a copy of Das Kapital. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, Mrs. Patmore unimpressed by Daisy's complaints. Yes. Up, I can't tell... It doesn't look like they're still in the drawing room, or if they are, they've changed the lighting scheme. Mm. But Sybil's talking to Mary and says that, you know, her life is totally fine in Dublin. You know, she's Mrs. Branson. We go about our lives with killing every Protestant we meet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She says Branson feels patronized when they're at Downton. She keeps talking as if they've been there before. Yeah, that's true. which Which I thought it was pretty clear they hadn't. Yeah, anyway. But, you know, she's maybe she just means... Yeah. 
today I mean, or the whatever. writing's very clear on the wall at this point that it's very awkward for him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, everybody's been totally patronized. Like, Mary is patronizing <laughs> Sybil in this scene. She is. Because she's like, oh, do you regret it? And Sybil says, no, you know, never. He's a wonderful man. And Mary's just like, oh, you just don't understand. Oh, right. You're stupid. Yeah. Oh, I still love you. <laughs> it's yeah, very, very awkward. And... <laughs> You know, I'll forgive Mary being patronizing, but she really is. Yeah. Well, it is. You'll forgive Mary anything. It's true. Well, also. She could have a puppy kicking scene. You'd be (laughs) like, those puppies had it coming. Bitches. Um. And I will say also. I'm sure some of them were. Well, exactly. Well, and I also do think that it partly works specifically with Mary and Sybil just because it's the old sister, baby sister dynamic going. Um. So Sybil says she wishes that the family would get to know Branson, uh, which is going to be difficult if Matthew keeps bringing up Ireland at the first <laughs> dinner since he's been back. Indeed. I don't know why they can't just be like my family and never talk about anything. They used to be like that. <laughs> yeah. They used to never talk about anything. Remember when Maggie Smith said to Rosamond, you know, why do you speak your feelings? Nobody else does. Yeah. Go with that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Mary tells Sybil that the entire Gray family will be coming to dinner the following evening, which uh, upsets Sybil for reasons we don't know yet. Right. But she says she better go up and see uh, if Tom's too suicidal, which I'm like, are you that's, joking? Because that's yeah, not really that's, a joke that you should be making. You shouldn't make I don't that. think you like, should. I, I see joke. where you're going, but yeah. Yeah, don't make yeah. that joke. Well, she's deranged by her pregnancy, I suppose. <laughs> Oh, yeah, she's pregnant, by the way. Right. We talked about maternity clothes. Okay. Just as long as we're all on the same page. She is pregnant, although it's hard to tell. Yeah. No, because that did make me feel better, because at first I thought she was just wearing the world's ugliest dresses for no reason. I was like, oh, okay. We uh, then get to find out who these greys are. Uh, Sybil is talking to Branson and says that uh, Lord Merton is Mary's godfather, and Larry used to be keen on Sybil. And Sybil, she can't even remember if she was keen on him herself. I certainly hope not, having seen this specimen. <laughs> yeah. But they're, uh, as, this is as they're getting into bed, by the mm-hmm. way. Sybil asks Branson not to talk about Ireland all the time. She says she's just trying to make things easier for you. And he's like, easier for me or easier for you? Don't disappoint me, Sybil. And it's like, do you think that you're advancing the cause by complaining to your relatives about Ireland? You should watch a little movie called Lincoln. (laughs) Right. Because, A, even if you were going to change their minds, they're really not important people. They're not. They seem like they are, but even before they lost all their money, like, they really, they just sort of sit around and, and talk. Yeah. And, and Sybil says something about we could use the money to buy you a new suit. For this dinner. Right. And he says, no, we're not going to touch that money, which I can only assume is like for their baby or something. Yeah. They've, they've got some money put away for something. Yeah. Yeah. Not coming home for the wedding. No. So. Yeah. So. So Matthew was still at the house on the same evening. Apparently he refused to leave his mother with the chauffeur and he says he'll walk back to his house. And Mary's like, what if it rains? And he's like, ah, it's fine. <laughs> he's like, come give me a kiss instead of kissing him. <laughs> Mary asks what will happen if Mr. Polebrook can't be found. But she but calls him like pincushion or, or something. Pillbox. Yeah. And I'm like, it's not a hard name to recall. Yeah. I was like, what a bitch. Yeah. Like, uh, he, that was. So Matthew says that he'll give the money back if, you know, if he's left any money, he's not going to keep it. Right. I was like, well, I don't think, 
I don't know if he said give it back because it's like Reggie Swire really can't use it anymore. Yeah, like, no, he didn't say give it back. <laughs> right. He's going to do something else with yeah, it. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, regardless, the same question, like what what are you going to do with it? Like he says he can't keep it, but who? Molesley? <laughs> Nothing good's happened to him ever. That's true. Up in their room, McGee is asking Lord Grantham why he was foolish enough to invest so heavily in a single enterprise, which, like, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Uh, And then she wants to know whether any of her fortune was lost. Yeah. At that point, Lord Grantham says some, which is a dirty lie. (laughs) Yes. And then says all. And then McGee is, like, justifiably appalled. Yeah. And then Lord Grantham averts any sort of reprimand by crying like a little bitch. (laughs) McGee goes up to him then and starts comforting him and saying, I'm an American. Have gun, will travel. Like, are they going to start robbing stagecoaches? That would be exciting. That would be a much better show than what I've seen so far. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, I'll say that I can understand Lord Grantham, like, you know, crying because he did, you know, single-handedly piss away an astonishing amount of money. And right. And everybody's going to know it was It just him. seemed like such a ploy to me. I know. I, I understand that. And I'll also say that I I think I'm okay with how McGee, like, forgives him right away or mm-hmm. whatever. Because, you know, they're not getting divorced. I know. They're if not, he did that, I would forgive you. Yeah. I like, just think she still should have been a little more angry. I, you know, I there's certainly a At case to be made. At least one night of making him sleep in his room, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh... Yeah, but and then and that's where McGee says that they should live it up with Mary's wedding. If it's going to be the last, let's make it a glorious last. And uh, they hug and then presumably start discussing the suicide pact. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it at the dower house. Perhaps the shock will kill Mama. <laughs> Uh, down in the village, Matthew walks jauntily along and walks past what's left of Branson, who is attempting to check into the pub. Uh, he he can't stand to stay at the house anymore. Uh, but You've been down in those mines one day. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but Matthew persuades him not to. He says it's just going to make things worse. Uh, and that he likes Branson and that Mary is a pragmatist. So apparently she doesn't like Branson. Yeah. But, you know, she can deal with it. Um, and that they have to stick together because Ooh. they're brothers now. Oh, I want to see a spinoff called Brothers-in-Law where <laughs> Matthew and uh, and Branson go into business together selling Fuller Brush door-to-door. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, they'll need to do something. Or wait, maybe it's Brothers-in-Law and it's like that one show about the lawyers called Suits or whatever where like the one guy has a law degree and the other guy like doesn't but oh, he's a super genius. yeah. And they go around like lawyering. <laughs> yeah, well, he could turn his lawyering skills to the cause of Irish independence. <gasps> it's like, listen, you do the legal stuff, I'll do the bombing. Julian Fellows, <laughs> skip this whole uh, Cora LG prequel business, and let's just do this one. Yeah, and if you could get it filmed and on the air by next week, that so that we don't, would yeah, be great. It would really help out our schedule. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Back at the prison, shank him. <laughs> Bates is telling Anna that he can't see what the connection would be between Vera and the people in her address book because he apparently is a freaking moron. <laughs> yeah. Anna patiently explains that she's going to write to every single person in the book uh, to find out if Vera said anything to anyone about a desire to die. Yeah. Which, wouldn't you think at some point the police 
might have questioned some of these people. Well, I mean, some of them, I understand she wants to cast a wider net. I think it's actually a pretty decent plan. But as these things go. And and I just want to ask, like, what if he did kill her? Yeah, that's exactly... What if, because the way the show is filmed, there's nothing to contraindicate that he didn't kill her. Yeah. Like, I really think we should all be considering that possibility much more seriously. (laughs) Like... Anna refuses, and Bates keeps me like, seriously? Yeah. You really don't think I killed her? Yeah. Okay. Cause, cause maybe, maybe he killed her. Maybe he did. I think he probably did. Like, come wouldn't on. you? Yeah. I mean, you know, he should have found a better way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Clearly. And like disposed of the body. Like, or no something. one liked her. What if yeah. he just disappeared? <laughs> just wrote a note in his own handwriting saying, I've gone to India. Goodbye. <laughs> Signed, Mrs. Bates. <laughs> Me, Polbrook. <laughs> uh, in the kitchen, Alfred says that he might have liked to go into cooking, but uh, apparently it's a hard road for a man in the, uh, I guess in the London hotel scene would be where cooking is Which happening. is not, maybe I'm thinking more of country estates. The research that I did indicated that most chefs were male, but... Yeah. O'Brien takes the opportunity to sass Daisy about dogs' bodies taking orders from... Uh, sweaty red-faced old women or something like that i think shouting red shouting red-faced women, faced women. Yeah. mrs patmore comes and is like you rang <laughs> yeah jokes yes down nabby the lighter side <laughs> upstairs anna has given edith uh finger waves in her hair so this is our first uh experience seeing some finger waves yeah uh and they look fit Edith is so pretty. She, she is. just she looks happy. Mm-hmm. Um, Edith basically says she wants to marry Anthony Strallen. Yeah, and she wants to see if he'll notice her. Uh, her yeah, which yeah. is adorbs. Yes, I can't believe how much I like Edith now. I know it's insane. Yeah, um, but she, you know, she says her family doesn't approve of her wanting to be with Anthony Strallen because he's too old, and she's saying, you know, Bates is so much older than Anna, and Anna's like. You don't want to, like, use that in your argument. <laughs> it's like, Anthony Strallen may be old, but he's not a convicted murderer. <laughs> so uh, Edith, you know, just kind of feels wistful. Yeah. Uh, up in one of the hallways, uh, Thomas tells O'Brien that he doesn't have time to talk. She's been, like, lying in wait there for him like a snake. Yeah. Um, but uh, he continues talking to her despite his lack of time um and she asks well, she says that lord grantham hasn't come up for dressing yet. oh okay um so she asks him to help alfred train as a valet so that he can work for matthew uh and thomas points out that he went through hell to be a valet and is not about to help this you know no good hobbledehoy that's right make the leap in one giant step um so he he refuses to offer many tips and once again, I'm like, weren't you guys best buds as of last, you know, checking? Yeah. I just, what happened, guys? <laughs> like, was there a thing? It's not at all clear. Anyway, uh, there's a car in the dark. Look at it go. Woo. It's stopping at the door. Some people are getting out. Yep. I assume it's the Grace. Yeah. And uh, Mary and Matthew are uh, talking about someone being sick. Sick? Yes. What we learn from this exchange is that somebody we've never met and will never meet Nor is ill. Will we learn his name? Right. So glad we got that covered. Uh, yeah. So that's fascinating. <laughs> so at the, at the party, uh, people are gathered in the drawing room or wherever, and uh, Larry is talking to Branson, and oh my. 
permasneer. <laughs> yeah. Like I no, I think like I think that actor on his resume under special skills it just says patronizing sneer. <laughs> Cuz it's, you know, as these things go, quite impressive. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, and he's saying that I, uh, you know, he didn't expect I'd ever see you in person, you filthy peasant. <laughs> <laughs> and so on. Um and uh he he you know, he asked Bransom if he has uh, lost his suitcase and he says no my suitcase arrived thank safely thank you along with my manners so uh boom yeah <laughs> sweet burn the dowager countess comes in with uh cousin isabel and they're you know blabbing about how uh branson is wearing a suit and not wearing the appropriate attire mm-hmm. and isabel starts crowing about how it's so great to have a real person and i'm like you know you're including yourself in the category <laughs> of not being a real person now yeah which is fine she is a fictional character <laughs> this is true lord grantham offers one of these new cocktails to the dowager counter so they have finally imported the practice from america yeah not soon enough for Sir Richard Carlyle, of course. Well, and I'll tell you what, Lord Grantham appears to have taken rather eagerly to mm-hmm. this uh, new custom because he has had a couple. <laughs> and I I think he should always be a little bit drunk because I find him much more enjoyable. <laughs> uh, but the Dowager Countess demurs saying she thinks the cocktails look too exciting for so early in the evening. <laughs> and Carson uh, agrees. Yeah. Elsewhere in the room, Isabel is Oh, right, Isabel is uh, talking to Sir Anthony, and Edith comes over and starts working her game. Oh man, on... she works it. Yeah, she is uh, all up in an Sir Anthony Stralum. She's like, propose to me already. Do it now <laughs> in front of all these people. I want a husband. Um, I want a husband right away. Yes, uh, and he says, "I say, have you done something rather jolly with your hair?" <laughs> Which is adorable. It's very adorable. And then is startled by uh, Larry Gray. Doing something, yeah, not just, clear what. Yeah, startled. Uh, and then, while well, he's interrupted by Carson coming in and announcing that dinner is served. Yes. Uh, back downstairs, Daisy asks Alfred how dinner is going. And he says that Branson got completely sloshed before dinner. And is just, like, yelling and carrying on and making a scene. And he says he only had one drink. Mm-hmm. And Daisy said that maybe he was drinking up in his room to calm his nerves before the party. Yeah. Which is uh, perfectly reasonable. I am doing that right now. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding, guys. I'm not going to a party. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and back upstairs, it is true. Branson is going on about the black and tans and uh, everybody's wishing he would Horrified, stop. Horrified, yeah, actually. Like, yeah. It's very, very awkward and uncomfortable and... You know, the, the Dowager Countess says, is there any way to shut him up? Um, and, you know, and God, oh, and Sybil is just as mortified as mortified can be. Uh, you know, it's awful to uh-huh. see. Um, and everybody, of course, except Larry Gray, who is uh, most amused by mm-hmm. the whole circumstance. And at this point, Sir Anthony realizes... I guess he puts two and two together at this point and realizes that the mysterious thing that startled him earlier was actually uh, Larry Gray spiking Branson's drink yes. somehow with, I can't some even imagine Some sort of horrible what. pill. Yes, some sort of horrible pill. That's all the explanation we get. Like, was it Vicodin? Yeah. That would just put him to sleep. What was it that, first of all, that this guy just had around on him? I mean, I guess he knew Branson was going to be there and maybe planned this in advance. I think he did plan it. Maybe he just slips people Mickey's everywhere he goes. I guess, yeah. Just 
odd. I, I like the detail though in this scene because, um, Sybil's upside and Edith says, what a beastly thing to do. Yeah. And he says, come on, Edith, you always liked a good prank, which I thought was this really great sort of nod to sort of the person who Edith used to be. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. can just totally see her being the one of the sisters who would always hang out with the boys and like go along with their horrible tricks to like yeah. try and like get in with them. But yeah. she was never, never quite right. one of them. Well, cause c- good Lord, can you imagine what it's like, t- what like 15 year old aristocratic boys would have been like? I can't. I like, can. I watched that if movie. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, just awful. But yeah, I will say, I mean, this scene, I I enjoyed this whole scene. Like awkward dinner parties are like that's the Downton Abbey like forte. Yeah, and this their, was no exception. I really that's liked, their tea and crumpets. Yeah. I really like the scene. And and Sir Anthony has called out Larry and um basically Larry is completely unrepentant. Yeah. And eventually you know, Sybil's trying to kind of pack Branson off upstairs so he can recover. Mm-hmm. And eventually, uh, Larry's father gets so upset. Lord Merton gets so upset that he stands up and tells his son, like, to shut up. Yeah. All this stuff. And, you know, he apologizes unreservedly, which for a British lord mm-hmm. to apologize unreservedly to an Irish peasant yeah. who has, you know, absconded with the daughter of an earl. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty... It is. It's a pretty big moment. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, then Matthew has to ruin <laughs> and make all about him. <laughs> right. actually is very sweet. He asks Branson if he'll be his best man. Yeah. And, like, Branson's not really in a position, like, to consent to anything right now. <laughs> well, that's true. But, um... But... It's, you know, solidarity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, McGee implores everyone to simply forget that her son-in-law has mm-hmm. uh, been, you know, the victim of a very cruel prank. Right. And, you know, for some reason, the Dowager Countess has to say, you know, we'll forgive, but never forget. I'm like, no, like, forgive Branson. Just make sure you don't forgive that guy. Like, yeah. he's the worst. Yeah. Which I wasn't sure if that was what that was supposed to imply or what. That was that was just a slightly yeah. odd line. Well, then I'm that like, wasn't... did you all go on with dinner? With that guy? Uh, well, Couldn't that's... you make him go sit in the corner or something? I mean, he'd been, you know, he'd been publicly scolded by his father as yeah. a grown man. So that's... Yeah. That's... I mean, you know. I mean, and, you know, and and the effect of his prank was completely destroyed. So, yeah. you know, it's all right. Outside, Edith is seeing Sir Anthony off and tells him that he saved the day. And he says, oh, no, Matthew saved the day. I'm like, don't be so obsequious. You were the one who saw what happened. Yeah. Now, why you waited so long to mention that there seemed to be something odd happening? Right. Well, yeah, that's just what's well, like strange about it. Well, because his reaction was very, he was like, I think he's, did he say, good God? Yeah, I think he did. I think a <laughs> That's a good point. I think you're right. Bring fruit. Bring cheese. <laughs> bring anything to take the effects of this horrible drug away. <laughs> Anyway, Edith is being very sweet and she's saying, Oh, you know, when the wedding's over, like, call me maybe. <laughs> and he's like, I would like that more than I feel like I should. And I'm like, Didn't you have this conversation like 47 times last season? <laughs> God. <laughs> Uh, then Lord Grantham totally bitchily cockblocks Edith. He's like, Edith, get in the house. Let's her Anthony go home. Yeah. Uh, but she doesn't leave without kissing. Oh, she most certainly does get a smooch in there. Yeah, and Sir Anthony Stroud is like, I say, how jolly. (laughs) (laughs) What a jolly kiss. (laughs) In the library, Lord Grantham uh, comes in and and meets with McGee there, 
and says golly about something. Well, he couldn't be outdone by Sir Anthony Stralin (laughs) saying jolly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, McGee compliments Matthew's uh, solidarity with with Branson. And Lord Grantham is like... Yes. He's still not yet ready to hear anything good said about him. But she asks when Lord Grantham is going to tell the girls about, uh, you know, the lost fortune. Yeah, they're all going to have to get jobs now. Right. Um, and he says he's decided that he'll tell Mary uh, he needs to tell her before the wedding because they've been arguing about where to live and then they can discuss it during the honeymoon, which <laughs> that sounds like a great honeymoon. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Awesome. Not. Yeah. Uh, but he asks her if he should mention anything to her mother and uh, McGee says no and which, you know, duh. And uh, but also says that she will be bringing enough drama of her own which is certainly what Julian Fellows desperately hopes is true. Indeed. <laughs> uh, back at the jail, Bates is sitting in the dark going through that address book or doing something. Right. And his cellmate, whose name I never caught. Yeah. I think he said it, but I didn't hear what he said. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, but he says that if Bates doesn't admit his guilt, they will never let him out of prison when his sentence is up. Although I think for murder, it's life. <laughs> right. So, any, I don't, yeah, or if he's implying that even if they do clear his name, if he doesn't like admit, it was yeah. Regardless, the most important thing that happens in this scene is that Bates tells that guy to shut up, <laughs> uh, but then he says that Bates is so pious and you know acting like this, and it's like he's my own personal Mary Sue. <laughs> I'm like, oh, does this mean that eventually we're gonna see Bates get shanked? <laughs> Shank Bates! Shank Bates! Shank Bates! Let's get that shirt. <laughs> I feel like we should have done it in the lead up, though, because we're, you know, we're going to get through to the end, <laughs> and I'm sure he's not going to get shanked. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, he could still get shanked even after he's set free. <laughs> <laughs> that that cellmate of his shows up. It's Alfred. <laughs> <laughs> um, up in Mary's room, Mary is trying on a hat. Edith doesn't like it. Sybil does. Listen to Edith in this instance. <laughs> Uh, and actually, I like it. I think it's rather a jolly hat. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. It's, uh, you know, goes with the dress, has mm-hmm. a feather. Lord Grantham comes in, uh, and asks if he can give Mary his blessing. And they're all but like, but, but you hate Mary. You hate all of us. <laughs> uh, but he, he kicks them out. Um, and she says, go on, bless me. And he says, yes, but first I have to tell you something. I was hoping to wait, but I can't anymore. And she says, that sounds rather ominous. You'd best tell me off screen. (laughs) Her outfit, though, is spectacular. Yes. Oh, gorgeous. Gorgeous outfit. And that brings us to our next recurring segment in which our uh, hat harlot, Kelly. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Sorry, I had to come up with an alliteration on the spur of the moment. We should really plan for this better. Our, uh, <laughs> our, our... You could have at least called me, like, a harridan or something. <laughs> uh, our, our, our cloche connoisseur. That's slightly better. Yeah, all right. Uh, Kelly Anakin. Although you really did scoop me there. <laughs> all right, oh. so... We are going to be talking about cloches, specifically, which are... Very present in this episode. Uh, if you don't know, it is a style of hat. Uh, it was not confined to the 1920s. Uh, everybody kind of associates it with that period, but they first appeared in 1908. Okay. And either Caroline Rebeau or Coco Chanel invented them. I'm going to give the credit to Rebeau, both because she wasn't a Nazi. 
Excellent point. And also, it's it seems more agreed upon than it was her. Okay. Um, and what what is a cloche? How would we know it? Why it's funny that you should ask that. That's my next point. It was one of the most uh, extreme hats to date. Uh, okay. It kind of looked like a helmet. And I tried to figure out if there was any influence of the helmets from World War One kind of influencing it, but I hmm. couldn't find anything that would state that. Right, right. Um, but they're very helmety. They have a brim that is worn um, very down close to the eyes. You basically, you know, had to, like, lift up your head in order to see. Okay, okay. So I, it's really a cute shape hat mm-hmm. on me specifically, <laughs> uh, if anybody wants to send me a cloche. Uh, but they were very in vogue from about 1908 to 1933. Uh, that was kind of, like, their heyday. They did come back in the 60s a mm-hmm. bit. And then in the 80s, there were some, like, hot couture versions. But mm-hmm. primarily, the period that they were most popular was the 20s. And actually, the 30s, I think, in many ways, is even more... Peak cloche. Yeah, peak cloche. So um, they had sort of, like, a bell contour. Like, if you look at the hats, you can kind of see. And their brims, I think, are actually pulled up. Okay. Which generally did not happen until the later 20s. So I'm not entirely sure what that's about. Hmm. But... You know, if Julian Fellows got it wrong about this, you know, Great Trunk Railway, right, right. then... Who knows? <sighs> Slipping. Yeah. And there was a lot of Art Deco influence on these hats as kind of everywhere else. Mm. Um, but the construction lines often would have zigzag seaming to kind of illustrate how well-made they were, how handcrafted. Mm. Um, and they would use some appliques to decorate them. And they would use um, like Art Deco appliques to decorate them. They kept them pretty simple mm. in general. Um, just because it was so close to the head, they didn't want to kind of fuss it up. And really, and we'll get into this probably in a later episode, but fashion in general got completely redefined in the 20s. Mm. After the mm-hmm. war, um, you know, the drop waist was going on, but hemlines started to go back down. People wanted things that were very clean and simple looking. Yeah. So that's when you really start to get these long lines and this really nice tailored look that's not as froofy as mm-hmm. it had been in the past. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and you can see that with the women in the show. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all wearing these very long line dresses. The waists are dropped on most of them. Um, obviously, McGee and Isabel. And uh, the Dowager Countess and and Mikkel, they right. all kind of are still clinging a little bit to the Edwardian mm-hmm, way mm-hmm. of dressing. And what's also interesting about the cloche is that because the cloche was introduced, um, it, it's a very harsh look. I mean, it really covers your hair and, you know, kind of brings your face into stark relief. And this is what made it acceptable to use makeup. Hmm. Um after the war, makeup became this symbol of being sophisticated and being a very independent woman. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, th- this is where sort of compacts came into play because it was then seen as a status symbol. If you're out and about and, you know, you're powdering your nose, then, you know, you're you're exhibiting your feminine. You know, it, it's kind of like um, fan language, you mm, know, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, you know, I'm a woman and I'm doing this very womanly thing. Mm-hmm. The one item that was not considered appropriate was blush. Uh, it was used very sparingly. Hmm. And basically, if you put on too much blush, you were made fun of. Yeah. But your lips could be as red as you please. Hmm. So red lipstick was a really big deal yeah, at yeah. that point. Um, so rich people would get their cloches handmade, in many cases hand-molded 
on their heads. Oh wow! Uh, as opposed to just having the the Milner make it on a hat form. Right, right. That was part of the zigzag pieces uh, that were sewn together was you know to be this status symbol. Mm-hmm. But what's funny is that the mass produced versions actually were able to to put them together as if they had been hand pieced. Oh. It was, you know, much harder to tell. Like it would have to have been really rich to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, for everyday people, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you're Isaac Mizrahi at Target and that kind of thing. Right, you know? right, yeah. Um one side was usually all there would be decoration wise. They would put like feather fans or scarves. Uh sometimes if you were really rich you could use like a diamond clip. And I think somebody is wearing a hat with a clip. I think it's Sybil. Mm. I don't know that it's a diamond clip. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they were they were very expensive, obviously. Well, sure. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of a way to dress up the cloche. For the mass-produced cloches, felt was the most common material used to make them. Uh, but in the mid-20s and later... Uh, they would use sisal, balabuntal, and baku straws. And sisal was a fine straw uh, that kind of looked like linen. And mm. it kind of came west in 1926. Um, baku was from Thailand, and they were varnished. So oh. the cloche would be kind of shiny. Oh. And, it, you know, kind of like uh, a modern-day straw hat where it's got that kind of sheen to it. Oh, got it, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, you could paint the straw or you could embroider it with raffia or, mm. you know, put some ribbon around it. Um, there are some straw hats in this episode, but they don't look like true cloches to me. They look, okay. you know, kind of like the descendants of the big, you know, portrait hats. Right. Um, but these are the hats that, um, McGee and Edith and even, I, I think Sybil's wearing a straw hat to the wedding. Okay. This further convinces me that this is taking place in the spring or summer. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think it's been like six months. That mm-hmm. seems reasonable to me for some reason. Yeah. Sure. Um, so, and you could paint your cloche, even if it wasn't made out of straw to kind of revamp it. Actually, Agatha Christie, uh, described in detail in her autobiography, how she would add new trim and and paint her hats to give them a new look. Hmm. And there was another language besides the compact, uh, different styles of ribbons on the hats would indicate different messages about the girl wearing it. Uh, an arrow like ribbon would indicate that a girl was single, but was already like dating somebody. Mm. And then a firm knot was marriage. And then a big bow meant that, uh, you were single and you wanted to, uh, <laughs> flirt down to clown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the other hats in this time period, the cloche was King. I mean, uh-huh. it was just all cloches all the time. <laughs> yeah. There were brimmed felts, felt hats, okay. which, you know, they're still made of felt, so they're not that different, but kind of, I think, like a fedora. Mm. Um, they'd be worn with clothes for sporting events. And uh, narrower cloches would be worn uh, to parties. I thought, actually, that McEl was wearing one of these in a later scene, but I think it was actually a bandeau. Oh, okay. There were cape line hats, which were straw hats, and they were broader brimmed. And um, they, you know, would be worn at the beach and, you know, for outings and things like that. But I don't think that that is the kind of hat that they were wearing to the wedding. This sounds much more informal to me. Mm-hmm. And because hats became so very, you know, hats had always been popular. But what happened at this time was that the couture houses decided to add uh, atelier shops to provide accessories and create entire ensembles. In fact, I think that Mary must have gotten her traveling outfit that she wears in the scene that we just talked about mm-hmm. from, you know, a couture house with an atelier house attached because it all goes together so perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know, 
basically they discovered upselling uh, yeah. and that instead of, you know, having people go, you know, to a Milner separately right, right, or, right. or whatever, you know, they could just have it all yeah. in one place. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and obviously, you know, it makes sense with this is sort of the, the boom in fashion and, and mm-hmm. really the invention of hot couture right. is at this time. Well, so, I mean, when you start, you know, when the the word Coco Chanel starts getting tossed exactly. around. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, two things. Hitler's a coming and fashion <laughs> is king. Everything's king in this. I'm sorry, everybody. Well. <laughs> um, so a couple of couture houses that I found is one called uh, Molyneux. Uh, that was run or started by Edward Molyneux from about 1919 to 1950. I feel like I've heard of that one actually. Yeah. Well, and it's weird because he had the least information available. Hmm. He, his father died and he ditched his plans for a career to become a painter. And then he kind of just started getting into fashion design and had hmm. this really successful, uh, couture house for years. Yeah. Um, and really all of them developed a perfume like that had not started happening yet oh. um until like kind of like i think like the 40s and 50s no a little earlier like the i think like the 30s mm-hmm. was when that was really like hot to have your own fragrance yeah and in many cases the fragrance lines outlasted the couture houses huh. um there's also lanvin which is still around today uh started by Jeannie lanvin she would make clothes for her daughter that her, you know, rich friends liked so much they wanted her to make clothes for their children. And so then at that point she opened a boutique and, and started custom making clothes. Mm. And she had, you know, boutiques all over the world. I think mostly that happened kind of after her death. Her daughter took mm-hmm, over and mm-hmm. she was bought out by a number of places. I think L'Oreal actually yeah. owns part of it. Um, but the line is still in existence and you can actually shop for a special exclusive H&M line. That's Landman. Oh. So, uh get to the store ladies. Um, and then there's uh, Jean Petou and his line actually lasted till 1987. He has quite the resume. He apparently invented the designer necktie. He invented the tennis skirt and knitted swimwear and basically destroyed the flapper look by bringing uh, hems back down. Wow. Uh, also credited with in- inventing suntan lotion. Goodness. He was he was really quite good. And then there is uh, Caroline Rabot, who I found to be very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, she is always also very much associated with the start of couture, mm-hmm. along with Coco Chanel, although mm-hmm. I hadn't heard of her before. Right, me neither. Um, but she made up this exotic past for, her, for herself, saying that she was the orphan daughter of an impoverished noblewoman and a man of letters. <laughs> uh, so, you know, she had this exotic, yeah, yeah. you know, mysterious identity. Uh she was called the queen of the milliners. Oh. So she was not king, but queen. <laughs> and she was known for a very clean, simple style. She used fabrics like satin, velvet, and felt. And, you know, she didn't like detail. She just liked a plain, simple hat. Mm-hmm. Um, and she used feathers a lot uh, in terms of, you know, decorating uh, the hats. Mm-hmm. Saw a lot of feathers on hats in this episode. Yeah. And... I like the feathers now way better than I liked the feathers mm-hmm. in previous uh, seasons for some reason. Yeah. yeah. Um, but some of her clients included uh, Marlena Dietrich, and she also dressed uh, Wallace Simpson because mm. uh, that was all going on right. at this point, mm-hmm. uh, the abdication and everything. But, I mean, she was really, you know, she was uh, haberdasher to the stars. <laughs> yeah. I know that's not technically correct. I just like to say haberdasher. We all like hats. to say haberdasher. So that's the cloche. Okay. Um, you know, they were terrifically popular because pretty much anybody could wear one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
you did have to pay for them, but the mass produced ones were so cheap. Mm-hmm. And you know, if it was mass produced, you could just wear it till it wore out and then just buy another one. Yeah. It was a very uh, democratic type hat. <laughs> yeah. And that's fashion backwards. Uh, Sources include, of course, our favorite Edwardian promenade, fashion-era.com, and our old friend, Wikipedia. Well, all right. Well, thank you, Kelly. You're very welcome. (laughs) Buy me a cloche. (laughs) I'll see what I can do. (laughs) Branson arrives at Isabel's to place a call, and uh, Molesley asks him for his hat and coat, because that's what he's supposed to do at that point. He's uh, essential. (laughs) Yes, he is. So inside, uh, the Dowager Countess and Isabel are discussing Martha Levinson, Miguel. Uh, <laughs> the Dowager Countess obviously dislikes her greatly, uh, and Isabel enjoys the way that she never seems overawed by the whole Downton experience. Yeah. And just, again, I just, like, does Isabel, wait, we already talked about this. We think she has Asperger's because <laughs> she cannot pick up a social cue to save her life. Yeah, yeah. But Branson comes in, and Isabel and the Dowager Countess inform him that he will be using one of Matthew's old mourning coats for the wedding. Uh, he announces that he views them as the uniform of oppression, and he refuses to wear one, and the Dowager <laughs> Countess says to shut up. <laughs> yeah. Then Matthew comes in, and, you know, he's like, what, you're making him wear a mourning coat? And the Dowager Countess is like, yeah, you have no say in this either, pretty boy. Yeah. I'd also like to point out that Isabel, he should fight his corner, Crawley, stands by without saying a word yeah, throughout this whole exchange. It's, well, God, he's she didn't know he was gonna go to a wedding without a morning <laughs> coat, Tom. God. Well, that's that seems to be what happened. Car drives up in sweeping dramatic fashion. Oh, to, and it's bright red. <laughs> yes. To the uh front of Downton. Uh and it is Mikel. She gets out uh, along with her maid, uh, who see, actually seems kind of interesting. We don't. See I like much that of her. maid. I don't. Yeah, but the she's... actress seems way too good to waste on her not doing anything. Yeah, so we're we're hoping for good things from the maid. Um, really good American accent. I don't know yeah. if she's actually American, but... right? But either way, <laughs> you know, McGee's American, and look what happened to her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't lose it, Reed. Don't lose it. <laughs> Yes, and uh, she she greets everybody with a wisecrack, uh, appropriate for each person. Yeah, and I was underwhelmed. Yeah, well, you know, she goes up to Sybil and says, you must tell me all your plans for the birth. We do these things so much better in the States. And then like, she goes up to Edith. Like, well, and I'm sorry for being crude, but you still push the baby out of your vagina, right? Like, I, what is the difference that you're referring to? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think she's referring to the fact that America had, like, better medicine or something like that? I suppose. I don't know. I guess I guess if I had been there, it would have made sense to me. <laughs> Uh, then most baffling of all, she goes up to Edith and says, Oh, Edith, still no one special. Well, take a tip from a modern American girl. And then she moves on to <laughs> yeah. Mary. And it's, this is like the story of Edith's life. Like, <laughs> I would do the right thing if only someone would tell me. I know. What is it? Prostitutes? Yeah. Like, like are I, you the modern American girl? <laughs> because I hate to break it to you, but you know Samantha Parkington. <laughs> Yeah. So then she goes up to Mary and says, Mary, you must tell me all your plans for the wedding and we'll see what I can do to alter them. Right. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, what a wacky old lady. Yeah. And this is just definitely a case of somebody like 
to way too much telling as opposed to showing yeah. what the character is showing. Well, and like, plane. and she goes up to like Carson and Mrs. Hughes and is like, she just keeps making all these like grand pronouncements. Yeah. Well, you know, we've all seen the trailer. She gets yeah. out and she's like, come war and peace. Dalton Abbey still stands and the Crawley's in it. Yeah. And we're like, haven't you talked to them since the war ended? Yeah. Like, we know it's it's in every shot. Yeah. We know it's still We there. would definitely be aware if it was missing. <laughs> if it had fallen and over. And then she said something to Mr. Carson and... Yeah, also, uh, Yorkshire not actually, like, invaded. I'm not sure if you mm-hmm. were aware that really... I didn't touch that. Yeah. But she says something about, you know, oh, the world has changed to Carson and Mrs. Hughes. And Carson says, oh, we changed along with it. And she's like, ha, 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 no, English people never change. I'll be in my room. <laughs> yeah, which, to be fair... The hell Carson has moved with it. Yeah. He has been kicking and screaming at He won't step. even hire a tall footman. I know. <sighs> even in this new taller age. Uh, down in the kitchen, uh, Daisy is being snippy and not helping with anything. She is on strike still. She is on strike. Uh, however, nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> um, Reed is telling Mrs. Patmore her mistress's requirements for the stay. Uh, she drinks goat's milk in the morning. Uh, she only drinks boiled water in England. <laughs> Boom! Yes. And no crab, no fats, nothing from the Marrow family. And one thing I wonder, I mean, I guess if she did keep kosher, her maid could have just said that. Well, yes and no. I mean, Mrs. Patmore might have fainted. Like <laughs> <laughs> Kosher! <laughs> Well, la di da. She would have right. said something very insensitive. She would have. Yeah. We uh, don't want to hear Mrs. Patmore's thoughts on the Jews. Right. We'll all just pretend that that wasn't going on at the time. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, um, but I mean, you know, she specifies no crab. Right. But they right. probably would have had maybe other shellfish, but maybe not. It wasn't yes. a particularly diverse fish time. Right. So it's, you know, hard to say there. I don't know if, I don't know if marrow is. I don't think marrow is okay. a problem. Okay. Uh, and she doesn't say anything about dairy and meat. So, right. But right. anyway, the point is I read somewhere that Martha Levinson is supposed to be Jewish and I am really hoping that they like talk about that. Yeah. Cause it hasn't come up at all. Well, right. And well, I mean, and I mean, if she is, then McGee, Mary, McGee is. Yeah. And Mary is technically. Yeah. And she's having this big church wedding. So, right, right. Or, you know, maybe she's which, a Christian. Maybe her yeah. husband was Jewish. Which also, by the way, I really would like to know about uh, the sectarian practices of Branson and Sybil. Like, mm-hmm. I really am interested in how they've, how they resolve that and to what extent it's an issue with their, that, to what extent that aspect of it is an issue with their family. And yeah. that's just been completely ignored. And, and I, I wish it hadn't been. Because he's obviously a Catholic. Right. He's obviously a Catholic. And if they got married, she had to convert. Yeah. I mean, in either direction. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. So it's it's hard to say. Anyway, yeah. we're hoping for more. Right. Because we are very curious. Yeah. So Miguel asks Matthew about his uh, parentage. Mm-hmm. And he explains, you know, that he's related to them through blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. Right. And she says that she's going to have to study that to remember it. And actually, uh, look, obviously, I didn't remember it. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's not that hard for her. Yeah. Also, you don't need to remember it. No. It's not going to be a quiz. You don't live here. Yeah. Uh, so then she asks why Matthew gets to inherit her late husband's money. Uh, and, <laughs> and McGee and Lord uh, Grantham just sort of like, ha, 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 you wish. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, thank God we're still talking about the entailment. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, then they kick Matthew out because it's bad luck for him to be around Mary the night before the wedding and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there is a great exchange between Miguel and Branson. She says, oh, you must be the chauffeur I've heard so much about. And Sybil says, you know, oh, grandmama, he's a journalist now. And she says something that was kind of confusing, but she's saying, oh, yes, I've heard about a lot of those journeys happening on my side of the water. How pleasant that they're happening over here. Yes. Which we finally decided was about class mobility. Right, right. It was a bit strangely phrased, yeah. but yeah. that's Well, that's she the- probably has to mind her P's and Q's or Lord Grantham's just going to punch her right in the face. <laughs> it's true. Out in the hall, Mary tells McGee that she can leave her and Matthew unchaperoned. And After tomorrow, everything is permitted. Right. And it's it's a little weird. It is really weird. Um, also, they've been left unchaperoned numerous times <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> yes, If they true. were going to do it, they already would have done it. Yeah. No, so so she goes off, and I, I was hoping the conversation would be the sense. <laughs> I wanted Mary to say something like, so, have, have you figured out what sex is yet? Because... <laughs> I've heard some rather startling things from Sybil. (laughs) (laughs) I really wish that that was the scene we got, not this scene. Yeah, because what she says instead is, how many moments of Crawley history has this hallway seen which Michelle Dockery manages to get through without rolling her eyes, mm-hmm. but I don't. And also insists that she still can't remember... Uh, Mr. You know, Polbrook's name. Yeah, which, come on. You know his freaking name. Grow up. But Matthew says that he's not going to keep Reggie's money if he gets it because, uh, you know, reasons. Like He's still hung up on this whole thing where he's got this big moral issue. Right. Where he thinks he killed Lavinia. Still, right. Even though it was the Spanish flu, yeah, like it killed a lot of people. And look, you can't take the delirious rantings yeah. of a dying woman too seriously. And moreover, even if you believe in the afterlife, yeah, they don't care anymore. And plus, I mean, yeah, yeah. And he did write this will, and you know, Lavinia really did love you. If it's in memory of his daughter, and he apparently doesn't have any other suitable candidates to leave it yeah. to, because it's not like you were third out of five. Uh-huh. You know, like you were third out of three. This is all, and I mean, and it's, it's like, uh, it's like that Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns wants to give Lisa the yes. money from the slurry factory. Like, like take that shit. Take the money. What's ro- what's wrong? It's not. It's not going to do any good if you don't take it. Yeah. So you know we are frustrated by that. Um, but Mary tells Matthew that that he has to keep the money because uh, she ain't got no money no mm-hmm. more. And um, but Matthew like is says no or whatever, and then Mary flips out and. Uh, says that, you know, he's not on their side and he won't save her father from humiliation and grief or something like you know, that. she didn't say the poor house. <laughs> True. And she, like, slaps him and leaves. And then Edith wanders into the shot. She's like, oh, sorry, have you seen my storyline? Because I just keep finding this old one with Sir Anthony, and that was eight years ago. <laughs> that can't be right. <laughs> poor Edith. Yeah. Wearing a smashing sweater, though. <laughs> yeah. Is she? No, she's not. She is at some point. She is. We, we see her dress down look at some point I know. in this episode. And she looks really good. I think it was I think now. 
Was it? Okay. But it doesn't make any sense. Well, I think... Oh, wait, no, because this is still the afternoon yeah. before dinner. She hasn't changed yet. Right, okay. Right, yeah. God, I'm getting so aristocratic. <laughs> <sighs> Back at uh, murder prison. Um... <laughs> Is that a series on the BBC yet? Because it should be. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anna is telling Bates what the plans are, and she says that, of course, she's not going to go to France with Lady Mary because she has to come back and, like, sit in gloom with Bates. But Bates says that, no, while he's in there, she has to go out and live his life for him and, you know, go to France and bang a French chick because he's always wanted to. <laughs> Um, he also has a line in here that he says that, you know, the, the minutia of Downton Abbey are his dreams and that, you know, uh, that the, the thought of something not being mended or a gun not being cleaned, which this is very pedantic of me, but would he have been, I feel like there would be a specialty like gamekeeper that would be responsible for the There usually was a gamekeeper, but he probably would have had to oversee Lord Grantham's specific guns. Fair enough. Anyway, it was just a random. And well, and they seem to do a lot of sharing of the work over there. Yeah, that's true. It's just before dinner, and the Dowager Countess runs into Miguel in the hallway, and they have a bitch off, which we've all seen, so we won't belabor the point. <laughs> uh, the Dowager Countess says that Miguel will love Matthew even more than the Dowager Countess herself loves Matthew once she gets to know him. Uh, and then McEl starts talking about how much better Americans are than Europeans because they don't have traditions. Right. And she thinks it's so stupid that he can't be there to see Mary in the evening, which, you know, she's correct about. Mm-hmm. But then she says, oh, your love of tradition got Europe into a world war. So, like, think about that. And I'm like, are you just going to be that person who keeps bringing up the frickin' war? Yeah. Well, and I would I would also like to make two points. One – not sure that it was the love of tradition per se. Two, you do realize America was also in that war. Well, I interpreted it to mean that she was blaming England for getting them into it in the first place. Right. She seems like a real isolationist. Yeah, which, again, America could have just not done that. But anyway. So we, we finally get to dinner, and everybody is discussing the mystery of the money that was sent to Sybil and Branson and finally, the Dowager Countess ends the mystery by saying, oh, well, for crying out loud, it was me. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, not sure why this has been a mystery for so very long. Yeah. Um, you know, needed something to do. She gets a great line off about her lady's maid. She says, oh, Smithers did it. Like all lady's maids, she lives for intrigue. Yeah. And I also love that her lady's maid's name is Smithers. Yeah. <laughs> yes. If I ever get a lady's maid, I'm going to call her Smithers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was nice. Also, during dinner... Carson sort of like shoves a napkin into Branson's chest for oh, some does reason. He? Yeah, it was just, you know, clearly he wasn't doing the right thing with right. his napkin or whatever, and Carson was like <laughs> And I was like, dude, chill out. And so yeah, and the Dowager Countess is being nice to Branson and saying that, you know, he's part of the family now, etc. And uh then Mary bursts into tears and leaves. Yeah, she sure does. She spent the scene up until this point looking like she's going to pass a kidney stone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so very attractive. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, everybody's very perplexed. Downstairs, yeah. Mrs. Patmore is loading up Alfred's tray with, like, tea things, and she keeps trying to, like, bait Daisy. Into- she, she's, like, kind of talking to Daisy as if Daisy is, in fact, helping her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they're both being really weird. Yeah. 
And then back upstairs, everyone uh, is trying to figure out what the fuck just happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Edith, you know, is telling what she overheard, as she does. Um, that is her primary function. <laughs> yes. She's like a dictaphone. <laughs> and I think Lord Grantham at first says he's going to go talk to Matthew, but mm-hmm. then Branson says, no, I will do it. Uh, you know, he, that I'm the best man and I'm not comparing myself to him, but I, he has married into, I've married into this family and we were both kind of outsiders and yeah. all this sort of thing. And then Miguel has my favorite line of the whole episode where he says, why not? He's the one who loses his job if the wedding is canceled. <laughs> and apparently no one can argue with that airtight logic. <laughs> yes. And yeah, I'll just take this moment. We sort of said it before to just say that the whole Matthew and Mary fight it could have worked and just doesn't. And I just, it just happens so suddenly in that one scene. Mm-hmm. Just, and. Well, and the impression that I had gotten from all the previews, I kept thinking that it was this like multi episode arc for some reason. Right. But it's not. Yeah. It's, it's just this like tiff that they have. Yeah. And but it's, it's just, just so severe and so sudden and so. And it just feels like. We've been here before so many times. Yeah. And. Yeah. You know, it's just boring at this point because you know they're going to get back together. Yeah. Down in the kitchen, Daisy accuses Mrs. Patmore of not responding to her protest. Mrs. Patmore responds by accusing her of consulting with Thomas. And that's the end. And Daisy decides she's going to start working. Yeah. That's it. I don't. I don't understand why, like, Daisy took Thomas's advice. I don't understand why she still feels like it's such a tear. Like, he's advocating for something good. Yeah. And I mean, he's the one who, you know, encouraged her to try for the raise in the first place right. back in the Christmas special, isn't he? I think so. Oh, no, no. It was um, Rosamond's maid that was stupping that old guy. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Oh, I forgot about her. Right? Yeah. Um, well, Matthew and Mary are staying with Rosamond in England or in London so they can get used to each other. <laughs> and Anna says that to Bates and it's so cute. Yeah. She's like, they're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. she's more excited about it than they are. <laughs> Up in uh, Mary's room, uh, Mary is whining about this whole contrived drama to Anna and uh, saying that Matthew won't save Papa Anna says that uh, he has to be true to himself and Well, Mary's and- problem is that she thinks that Brant- that uh, Matthew is putting his own interests above the families. Right. Which, like, is true. Yeah. But also, under this system of law, is entirely his prerogative. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how she thinks her dad has lived his life. I mean, look, her dad put himself above everybody and look what happened. Mm -hmm. So he's just following in the footsteps of the elder, you know, Lord Grantham. Yeah. Yeah. But then Anna tells her, you know, to suck it up because she's not going to find another great guy. And also you're a million years old and your eggs are gone. (laughs) Matthew and Branson are, I guess, at Matthew's house. I guess. Yeah. Drinking cocktails. Which, like, you sure you want to do that? Like, maybe he's going to slip you a Mickey. Um, but Matthew gets very self-righteous about the whole, you know, issue with, with the will and everything. Mm-hmm. And Branson's just like, listen, dickhead, you know, you need to marry this lady because, like, seriously, like, get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, he has a line in there where he says, you know, I've, I've known since I was at this house and first this kept you apart and then that kept you apart. And I was like, Wow. We spent like 40 hours of podcast recapping the first two series and he just did it in about eight words. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of feel like that was pr- 
that's really all you need to know. To first this kept them apart, then that kept them apart. Let's not dwell on that. <laughs> <laughs> this very lucrative podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then there's a knock on Mary's door and it's Branson and Matthew. <gasps> Mary gets all uppity and is like, you can't come in cause I'm not dressed, which she's wearing more clothes than I wear to go outside. <laughs> I don't understand this time period. Yeah. Uh, Branson's like, Oh, you know, give him a chance. <laughs> and so Mary agrees that she will talk to Matthew if they don't look at each other because tradition. Right. And Anna backs her up. She's like, it's bad luck. Seriously, <laughs> I know a little thing about bad luck. Don't want to tempt fate. Uh, so then they have this whole conversation and Matthew's like, oh, we're totally getting married. And she's like, why? And he's like, because of something Tom said. And it sounds so foreign coming out of his mouth yeah. that I expected Mary to be like, who? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and uh, sort of oddly a bit to me because he's like, listen, I know we'll fight over money and about family and like, what else is there? That's what you're pitching here? Like, I know we'll fight about money, and I know I'll beat you, and I know I'll turn to drink. Jack <laughs> <laughs> Nappy season five. <laughs> Special victims unit. Well, yeah, like if they really take it much farther and just recat cast Matthew as just like a fat guy <laughs> that just is constantly beating Mary. <laughs> accepting submissions so if you would like to submit an actor's name for this role uh i'm gonna go with robbie coltrane it's a little a little <laughs> unconventional because now that? he's usually playing nice people but i i can see that or That's... uh oh god what's his name who was in in bruges uh brendan yeah lynch no no that's, that's a... somebody else yeah that's someone we know personally oh he doesn't listen to this podcast <laughs> well good <laughs> It's not Brendan Coyle, because that's no, Bates. Right. It's, uh, it's that guy. You know that guy. Yeah. You know that guy, I think cousins. it starts with a B. <laughs> he also was in 28 Days Later. <laughs> this has been very helpful. This is what life was like before smartphones, kids. Yeah. We just would have to leave it there. <laughs> You've already figured it out. Let's move on. Right. <laughs> yes. They, uh, whatever, you know, whatever the merits of his, the case he makes to her, it works. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he wins her heart again. She agrees to kiss him if they both keep their eyes closed, which she totally welches on. <laughs> yeah. Because she's a bitch. Yeah. But they are still cute together. They are really cute. Like, <laughs> I spent this entire episode wanting to throw things at both of them. <laughs> and I was like, aw, how come they haven't been kissing? Yeah. Like, if they just kissed more. <sighs> oh, also, random thought that occurred to me. I wonder how all this would have gone if Lord Grantham had lost all the money and Matthew was not engaged to marry. Hmm. You know? Because, like... At what point do you tell him, like, or, like... Yeah. Like, that would have been a whole other interesting thing. That would have been probably more interesting. Yeah. But that ship has sailed. Yep. yep. The interesting ship has sailed. We're stuck on the boring barge. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, guess what? It's the day of the wedding! Yay! The day of the wedding! Woo! Uh, Branson comes downstairs, and he's wearing his tailored morning coat, Mm -hmm. and Lord Grantham tells him that he looks very smart. (laughs) <laughs> and he thanks him for uh, helping Matthew, and he manages to call him Tom. Yes. And they have kind of an uneasy peace between them, yeah. you know, because uh, Branson said something about, oh, you know, he's sure Mary and Matthew are going to be fighting a lot because they both have very strong personalities. Mm-hmm. And then Lord Grantham was like, oh, I was I was going to 
get my panties all in a wad. But then I remembered you are perfectly welcome to speak like that to me. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So Branson traipses off to go find Matthew, mm-hmm. who I hope is at yeah. home. Oddly, I've almost always liked Lord Grantham and Branson scenes. I mean, there've only been like four. That's true. But they've they're always, they're yeah. well matched. Yeah. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. In Mary's room. <laughs> Second best scene. Yes. Uh, Mary's getting her uh, tiara put on and McGee indirectly asks her if she knows what to do in the bedroom. And Mary says she knows more than McGee did. Yeah. And I want to be like, um, this would be the perfect time for everybody to just laugh and be like, ha, ah, remember the time you had sex with that Turkish <laughs> diplomat and then we had to carry you into a different room? <laughs> yeah. I'm still sad about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Mary's totally kosh. Yeah. And then and she says something about not embarrassing Anna or something like that. And Anna's like, oh, I'm a married woman, uh-huh. lady. And Dita's like, I'm not married. <laughs> I want to be married. Hi, hello. Yes, here I am. <laughs> Poor Edith. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so they each bid her farewell. Uh, Sybil says something kind of nice. Uh, and yeah, she then- says that Mary's wedding is exactly as romantic as running away to Ireland. Right. Which it's not. <laughs> right. Uh, and Edith says, uh, love and position all in one package. Who could ask for anything more? And everybody just assumes that she's being a bitch. And I don't think that No, was... I think, look, she wanted to marry Matthew. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, don't think she's jealous of it anymore. But, you know, she's like, yeah. Yeah. You, you got the whole thing. Like, I think, you know, I think she was like, oh, I don't really have anything to say and, and she's, came up with that She's the quick, only but... person who understands the point of a society wedding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, this yeah, is, this was... is a best case scenario. Yeah. So downstairs, Mrs. Hughes has some rented children. Oh, We've right. never seen them before. <laughs> yeah. But she and O'Brien herd them into the car to yeah. go to the church. Uh, just, this is so much better than the workhouse. And I, I also noticed this earlier, but the new chauffeur is really old. <laughs> like when Lord Grantham placed his advertisement, he was like, I want the oldest chauffeur you can find and the most impotent. <laughs> Can't have Edith running off with anybody. <laughs> Although she likes them old, so really, I think this plan might not work out. Yeah, it could backfire. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes is checking on Mrs. Patmore and Daisy down in the kitchen, and they're both kind of bummed that they can't actually go to the wedding because they yeah. have to get the food ready and get it all set out. Yeah, they've already got. And like, the food looks amazing. Like yeah. there's like deviled eggs. There's these amazing like canapes. Yeah. Like it is a nice. Then that's just the hors d'oeuvres. I don't right. know if they're doing dinner or not. Yeah. Well, weddings they, were always in the morning. Right, right. So I get, maybe it's like a brunch situation. Yeah, but whatever it is, it looks nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mrs. Patmore tells Daisy to get her coat and they'll go and, and see Mary off in the carriage. Yes. And then Mary comes down the stairs in her wedding dress. And it almost makes up for the entire episode. It is nice. It is so stunning. Yeah. So pretty. I love the headpiece. It's so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Ah, it's just, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's just, it's a long sleeve dress. It just makes me wish that I had worn a different dress for my wedding. You were so beautiful. Aw, thanks, Tommy. Yeah. Um, but yes, she is met by her two fathers, Carson and Lord Grantham. Yeah. And uh, notably addresses Carson first. Yes. She says, will it do, Carson? Uh-huh. Uh, she never addresses her father. Yeah, like, that's true. He, he comes, just up, comes to up her. Yeah. He's yeah. like, I'm here. Yeah. And uh, he... Uh, Lord Grantham says that 
<laughs> he's so happy he feels his heart will explode. He's like, wait, that's not happiness? Call Dr. Clarkson! <laughs> <laughs> Roseanne already did that. Oh, you're right. <laughs> uh, yeah, God. Mary and Lord Grantham's relationship is so awkward. Every scene with them always feels so uncomfortable to me. Yeah. And it's well, never, I mean, yeah. yeah. I know he doesn't really like anyone, but her in particular. like, <laughs> Yeah, it is always a little... Well, Edith at least had that scene that one time where they were sad about Patrick dying. Mm-hmm. And Sybil was so young that I think he hadn't gotten entirely awkward yet. Mm-hmm. But maybe he's still squicked about Pamuk. <laughs> yeah, could be. Uh, so Edith gets to the church and insists that Anthony Strallen sit behind the family. And he's like, oh, no, I couldn't do that. I'm not in your family. She's like, oh, well, you know, give it time. <laughs> and he's like, uh. Listen, do you need me to draw you a picture? Because I will draw you a picture. <laughs> Matthew and Branson get to the church and Matthew patronizes Mosley by being like, oh, spiffing way you took care of my mother like you're going to do forever. <laughs> and Mosley looks very sad. Yeah. Because that's all he's got left now is sadness. Right. It's like, I know it's the happiest day of my life, but I wanted to get one more dig in. <laughs> Uh, and we just kind of flit around the church at this point. Yeah. Uh, Carson is saying, oh, it's such a proud day. And Mrs. Hughes says, uh, I don't know about proud, but I'm glad you're happy. <laughs> yeah. And I just love her because she's she, always there to take the wind out of his sails about yeah. Lady Mary. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, she's just awesome. And uh, the Dowager Countess and uh, Miguel talk about the future. And uh, It's and, just like a well, real old lady conversation. Yeah, and McLean's like, as long as you remember that it will bear no resemblance to the past. I'm like, it, it'll bear some resemblance. There's another world war coming. Yeah. Just, like, you know. <laughs> party. There'll still be like. World war party. <laughs> still be like weddings and shit. The villagers outside are blissfully unaware of their impending unemployment uh they are waving flags and cheering mary's carriage as it pulls up to the church mm-hmm. yeah we were we were briefly concerned at one of these shots that it was mary leaving the church and that they just skipped, <laughs> it the, skips wedding. the entire <laughs> wedding completely we're like just like that jerk yeah and uh branson as best man wishes matthew good luck as mary comes up the aisle uh and mary doesn't have any bridesmaids or, or maid of honor as no, far as we know she has flower girls right and that's it which we don't know uh you know whether that's whether that's a just a british wedding thing mm-hmm. whether that's a british wedding thing is that they were there just not on screen or what but flower girls are a huge part of it mm-hmm. but i don't yeah kate middleton had one that's it was true. pippa well, well but it was really pippa's ass right as we all know. But, I mean, that also could be something that's changed over time. That's so. true. I feel like it should have been covered. And I feel like if there weren't bridesmaids, but a best man, I would have remembered. But right. I'll look into this and, and see what okay. what the dealio is. Yes. Uh, Matthew says, oh, you know, I, I didn't know if you were coming for sure. And I was like, oh, shut up. Are you going to have another freaking fight right here? <laughs> but, fortunately, Mary just laughs it off and says, oh, good. I should hate to be predictable. Yes. And that's the end. Yes. And uh, we get the ITV announcer over the credits. And I swear to God, that woman is a phone <laughs> sex operator. Indeed. The way she talks about the ITV player uh-huh. is steamy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were taken aback. Yeah, we had to go actually make out for a while <laughs> so that we would be in a position to do this podcast. <laughs> so that's the end of the first episode. Uh, we're underwhelmed. Yes. So far. So uh, far. You know, but there had to be a lot of table setting in this episode. Sure. And, you know. Yeah. And, and 
you know, some of the plots we didn't like were resolved immediately. So we'll see well, how that yeah. goes. And, and, you know, we'll give it time. There were, there were sparks here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now it is time. For the Abbey Awards. Hooray! Oh, I've missed doing these. It's yeah. so fun. Uh, first up, best overbite. Uh, gotta be Larry Gray. Just <laughs> yeah. no question. I know it was kind of a sneer. Right. But also, but there was some clear overbite action happening Yeah, there. and this is our one chance to, to acknowledge it. Yes, so, yeah. I assume. <laughs> I can't yeah. think he'll be invited back. You wouldn't think so, no. Uh, best evasion. There were several candidates, I thought. One was, uh, I thought, McGee's evasion with the Irish Garden. Uh, that was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was more of a redirect than an evasion. True, true. Um, let's Maggie see. Maggie Smith almost evaded telling them where the money came from, but she fucked that up. Yeah. I'm sorry. She did the right thing. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Who yeah. am I talking about? <laughs> right. Uh, let's see. Lord Grantham evaded telling his other two daughters that they have to get jobs. Yeah, that's true. After first evading telling other people for a while. So yeah. there was, you know, a quantity of evasion there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think uh, I, I think the most dramatic and best evasion of this particular episode has to go to Mr. Polbrook. You mean Mr. Pincushion? Pillbox? Mr. Pemberley? Mr. Pepperpot? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, who went so far as to move to India and then die in order to evade the cursed inheritance. We think. They say there's convincing proof. We've yet to see it. But. Right. Uh, Either way, yeah. he did not want anything to do with Reggie Swire. Yeah, he's like, you keep the Swire gold. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is our Gibson Girl Award, uh, which we're going to give to Edith. Yes. Who was just smashing. We Now, you'd think that Mary ought to be able to wrest this away from her on the strength of the wedding dress and her traveling suit alone. But no. Yeah. Because I mean- Edith... She wore uh, this really pretty peach dress, both for the glass hammer scene and the dinner the night before the wedding. Mm-hmm. Wore it twice, and I actually I had to go back and check and make sure it was the same one because mm-hmm. it looked a little different to me both times. Mm. She wore a really beautiful salmon-colored dress at the dinner where uh, Branson invoked the Kaiser. <laughs> yes. She wore a really pretty uh, green velvet dress uh, mm-hmm. the night she had the finger waves done with these really cunning little straps. Yeah. And then her dress down look when uh, they were having tea mm-hmm. with Mikkel, like kind of an art deco sweater skirt combo that just looked fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so definitely Edith. Edith for the win on Gibson Girl. Yeah. How far we've come. Indeed. But I think they've really found a color palette that actually works on her. Mm-hmm. She kind of needs those warm colors because I think she has like a, a lot of yellow in her skin tone and her hair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think also they've just in general decided to, you know, make her a better, nicer character. Yeah. So they're, you know, more inclined to dress her better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next, we have a brand new award that we're debuting. Uh, it is the Fashion Backward Award for Backward Fashion, a.k.a. The Backy. <laughs> <laughs> this is my second favorite award name ever. <laughs> yes. Uh Yeah. Listen, Sybil. Sybil. If she continues to dress like this, it's going to be her in every damn episode. Like, <laughs> we'll have what? to rename it the Sybil Award. Oh my gosh, it's yeah. so terrible. So yeah. the very first inaugural backy goes to Sybil. <laughs> she can't have that baby quickly enough. <laughs> Indeed. Oh. Oh. And like, get a haircut. She's got Anton Chigurh's haircut. Yeah, you're right. She does. She really does. Yeah, she really, like, that's not, you can't blame that on the pregnancy. No, you can't. <laughs> And finally, yes. everyone's favorite award, <laughs> the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith. That's right. It was a solid four for our girl Mags this episode. Mm-hmm. We felt there were some clunkers in there. Yeah. 
she seemed like maybe she was phoning in a little bit. Yeah, which is my concern. If the writing falls off, I feel like Maggie Smith is someone who would not hesitate to stop caring. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so we hope that that doesn't happen. Uh, but tonight, you know, definitely, uh, you know, some real, real solid, solid lines. Oh, yeah, in there. absolutely. And it was really, I thought, uh, you know, her less like, foregrounded lines were the ones that were better, mm-hmm. the ones that were in the flow of conversation. Well, you got to figure they kind of wanted to set up Mikkel. Right. So they ma- wanted to make her look better, even though she kind of didn't. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, she got that one line off. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, I think uh, that that wraps up this premiere episode Absolutely. Here. Yeah. So we'll be back next week uh, with some Linny. Mm-hmm. And some complaints about PBS, I'm sure. I would imagine. So until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs. Luncheon out. <laughs>